This podcast is a member of WGPRN, modelgamesproductions.com. Good evening, folks, and welcome to the Darker Days podcast, episode number 11. I am your host, as usual, Vince, along with my co-host, Mark. Mark, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing outstanding. Vince, how are you? I am just super and dandy on this nice, warm day here in the state of Pennsylvania. Mm-mm-mm. Dandy indeed. Uh, with us this evening, folks, we have a very, very special guest, uh, none other than elite white wolf freelancer Malcolm Shepard. Malcolm, welcome to the show. Oh, uh, Chuck. Well, hi there. <laughs> Good to have you aboard. Thanks. Okay, well, tonight we'll be having Malcolm on the show, and we have our questions answered. We thank all the listeners and all the people who signed up in the forums to flood us with the questions. Of course, some questions didn't make it, and, uh, well, if you read the questions, you know why, but... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, as as yeah. you said, we've got more questions for Malcolm than we've had for any other guest so far. Um, so you'll be here till well, the small, small hours, Malcolm, so uh, yeah. you know, get comfortable. Oh, shucks. Well, that, that's quite flattering. Um, I just want to explain something, first of all. Um, some of the questions that uh, didn't get asked are questions that, you know, come on, guys, you know I can't answer because of non-disclosure agreements. So yeah, we don't know. ask those questions. Well, that, yeah, that seems to be something we get those every every with every guest that we have, and it might be a good idea that we have a general disclaimer when we're putting the the thread up for questions. That if it's about a product that's upcoming, it's chances are that the guest isn't going to be able to answer questions on it. So, uh, yeah, good point. Good point. Yeah, I mean, really, I mean, he, the guy wants to keep his job, not <laughs> spill the beans and lose his job. I mean, come on. It's a right. Well, so, um, I mean, sometimes you can get clearance for these things, but. Uh, but the stuff I got from Mirrors in the Chronicles Guide. I guess I just answered those questions, didn't I? <laughs> Curse you. <laughs> Sneaky. People who posted, you tricked me. All right. All right, let's, uh, let's go. What's up? Cool. Mark, you want to reach down to that mailbag and tell us what we got this week? Yes, indeed. There's been a little bit of time since our last show, so the mailbag has had uh, time to fill up. Mm-hmm. First mail comes from uh, Paige Turner, what? who sent us an, an awesome email with uh, Mark, who's that? Fant- Paige Turner, who sent us an awesome mail with a fantastic (laughs) submission for The Secret Frequency. Um, We've had lots of these recently, and we'll be working through everyone's submissions over the next few shows. This one came in at just the right time, though, and we'll be featuring that one in just a few minutes' time. Mark, are you you pulling my leg? No, leave me alone. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We had a mail also from Nathan Ortega. Hi, Nathan. Uh, Nathan would like to see a review on World of Darkness Innocence. Now, we've heard lots of good things about that book, so we'll be sure to add that to the review pile and get to it soon. Uh, also, if you come to our forums, uh, there, I believe one of our forum users, Law, is running a game based on World of Darkness Innocence. Oh, that's right, that uh, secret garden thing. I forget what mm-hmm. it's called. Perilous Garden? Perilous Garden, Perilous, is that it? I believe it's Perilous Garden, yeah. I don't have the forums yeah, up in the moment, really cool. but uh, if you want to just take a peek to see how it's run and want to know more about it, I'm sure she'd be happy to answer your questions. Uh, we also had uh, a mail from Dr. Ether, who sent in some incredible ideas for the secret frequency, which we will definitely be using. Great stuff there for Sherlock Holmes fans, and you'll see more about that in a couple of shows' time. Um, Dr. Ether has also been sharing his chronicle details for us on our forums, and he uses uh, his base city, Manchester, in England, which is great, because uh, so do I. Um, 
we've had several really cool mails from Alakoff with a host of suggestions for various things, some of which he's posted on the forums, like his ideas about a lost world-style plantation in the Deep South. And he's also interested in seeing a review of the Naga breed book for Wheel of the Apocalypse. And that'd be really cool. I mean, I really like the Pharaoh back in the day, so uh, we should get to that sometime. Um, Brian Westcott sent an email looking for ideas on an upcoming adventure he's writing featuring the Three Fates, the uh, Moriai. He posted a thread about this over on the White Wolf forums and the Old World of Darkness section there. So check it out and send your ideas his way. Um, Anatole sent in a mail right before the show, actually. And he thinks, uh, Vince, that you and I seem to know what we're talking about. So uh, that's another one fooled. Seriously, though, uh, thanks for your support there, Anatole. Uh, Anatole wants to know if we're going to do more coverage of Vampire at any point. So, yes, 100% for sure. Um, we've been exploring... I mean, well, come on, who likes Vampire? <laughs> I, I, have no, I have no idea of anybody who would want to play Vampire. I mean, Mage is the thing. Yeah, <laughs> he has only a very minor presence, really, in the you know in the development. You know, they, it's it's yesterday's game. Let's know, be honest. It, it only they only have it working on it. Vampire is so two thousand. <laughs> marginal, marginal demand at best. <laughs> Go ahead, Mark. <laughs> we'll definitely get back to that. I, I've had this crazy idea about doing a feature on Dirty Secrets of the Black Cat for the Halloween show. Um, Mark! <laughs> but I'm not, sure how, I'm not sure how sensible that is. Mark, you just gave away the secret. <laughs> um, and as always, uh, shouts out to our newest members of the forums, Ariadne, Lamented Whisper, Neverwhere, Evo Shandor, Snaltelt, J.M. Mariano, Rapscallion, Pronomancer, Welding Darkness, Daniel Say, and Osmendez. Hi, guys, and welcome aboard. Just super. Everyone's been joining up and asking questions, and Malcolm, you've been flooding our forums. Look at that. Have I? Not you personally, oh, cool. but, you know, your name. Not me personally. By proxy, yeah. No, uh, and we have some, uh, and of course we have a bunch of network shows on the network. Uh, we have Now Playing with Matt Buffington, uh, mattbuffington.nowplaying, I'm sorry, no, <laughs> mattbuffington.podbean.com, or is it M. Buffington? I think it's on It's M. M. Buffington. Yeah, it's M. Buffington. Sorry, yeah, yeah. sorry, Matt. Uh, you check out his show there, and then we got Liquid Weird with the other Mark, and that's yes. liquidweird.net. And uh, we also have our new show, our little Darkling, which you probably heard about and uh, listened to. Mark, uh, when's our next yeah, show? Yeah, that's, that's our 15, 20-minute short podcast that features uh, listener-submitted segments, and we had a great segment just sent in by Matt Buffington on uh, how you can incorporate the triad from Werewolf the Apocalypse into your Werewolf the Forsaken games. And we'll be having another one of those out in a couple of weeks' time, um, featuring a segment by Beckett on the Book of Nod. Um, so that's uh, the Darkling podcast, uh, our sister show, um, with uh, me and Vince again. <laughs> <laughs> again, yeah. And we will have a bucket full of Becketts in that show, as usual. Yes, we will. And, and also, uh, some people have... Uh, didn't we get an email regarding some voicemail? Uh, yeah, Alakov sent us in a suggestion about uh, asking whether listeners can submit their segments for the Darkling podcast just by voicemail. Well, uh, yeah, as long as it's not too long, I do have voicemail attached to my Skype. Alucard D20. You can just uh, ring me up. I'm, it's always up, so you can just ring it up and leave a voicemail and, uh, you know talk to me or you can follow me on twitter alucard d20 at twitter and uh you can follow mark as usual if he's not stalking clive barker <laughs> that's getting so old <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's funny though uh you can also it's funny follow it's true malcolm uh do you have uh, uh do you 
you're on Twitter as well, and people could follow you as well. I am. I, I have the imaginative name of Malcolm Shepard. <laughs> That's it. Um, M-A-L-C-O-L-M-S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D. Um, yeah, hook up. Um, yeah, I think the last time I was on, I was uh, was three glasses of wine in, and uh, and and I and I said a lot of things. Good stuff. So so don't so don't miss those less than wise posts from me. Um, cool. And also, it's a great way to keep up with uh, with the blog that I keep, since of course every time I post something on uh, Mob United. Dot com it uh, it spits out there too so it's a it's a handy way to keep up. Cool. Excellent. It's a good way to follow any of the developers of uh, White Wolf just to see what they're working on, read their stuff. You know, just look them up. I'm sure yeah, you'll find a, them. Sorry, Malcolm. There's a great little community there um, because there's uh, there's Chuck and uh, and Eddie Webb um, and uh, David Hill and a whole bunch of people and they're pretty active. Mm. So there's always something going on. You know, those guys are so busy with their own projects. Uh, a day never goes by where uh, where I don't uh, get a link to something interesting to read, a nice piece of fiction, uh, or an interesting chunk of game design. Excellent. Well, we're having David Hill on the next show, actually, so that's something to look forward to as well. Surprise, surprise. Mm. That's our next show announcement will be David Hill. And that will wrap things up. Uh, Mark, uh, what is our email? Our email is darkerdaysradio at gmail.com. Awesome pause. And you can uh, check us out at darkerdays.tk. And uh, let's get on to everybody's favorite segment. Mm-mm-mm. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, welcome once more to The Secret Frequency. And today we pay a visit to Porveglia Island. Um, this uh, little nugget was submitted to us by Paige Turner, who ran across it at the Dead Air blog. Um, you may remember regular listeners, the Dead Air blog was the cool blog we mentioned a few episodes ago. Hmm. They also covered the Fontenelle Cemetery. Right. Um, now, Porveglia Island is located between Venice and the Lido in the Venetian Lagoon in Italy. It's mostly farming land now, with a vineyard. Um, Poveglia was settled almost a thousand years ago, and existed in many forms over the years, as a monastery, an independent colony, uh, a dumping ground for plague victims, uh, a powder magazine for Napoleon, and a mental hospital for a somewhat sadistic doctor. During Roman times, uh, it was used to isolate thousands of plague victims. It was more or less a jail for those ill with the plague, with leprosy, the Black Death. Uh, folks were often taken there against their will, uh, dragged from their homes and ferried out to Poveglia, a terminal quarantine stopping point, if you will. It was used again in medieval times, during the Black Death, and during the 13th and 14th centuries, the bodies began to pile up. So pits were dug, and the people were thrown in, alive or not. Even those showing the slightest symptoms of the Black Death were dragged, screaming from their homes. I'm not dead yet. These... Yeah, I'm getting better. <laughs> These living victims, including children and babies, were taken to the island, thrown into the pits of rotting corpses where they were left to die in agony. And once the pits were full, they'd set the contents on fire. Burned alive in a plague pit. Delightful. 
Venetians these days believe that when you walk on Paveglia Island, you are literally walking on these people's ashes. And they're probably not wrong. Paveglia was abandoned in 1380 um, and brought back into use again uh, in 1922 when a mental institution was opened there. Uh, <laughs> apt choice if ever there was one. Local law states that a particular mental health doctor tortured and killed many of the patients and their spirits began to haunt the island along with those of plague victims of the past. Eventually this doctor began to see the spirits himself and jumped or was thrown from the bell tower to his death. Rumor has it that he's now bricked up in that same tower. And some say you can still hear the bell ringing late at night. There's another legend that says he survived the fall, but was strangled by dark mists that rose up from the ground to engulf him. And just to add to the creepy factor, human remains still wash up on the island shore to this day, bones bleached white by sun and salt and surf. All in all, over 160,000 people are believed to have died there over the years. Ripe fodder indeed for your World of Darkness Chronicle. So how are we going to use this in games? Well, well um, if I may, sure. yeah. one interesting thing about the island is that uh, it's, it's used for farming now, uh, mostly vineyards. I mean, uh, what's going into that wine? The heady you know, brew, yeah. Yeah, the soil is being enriched by the decomposed, the long decomposed dead, and perhaps the more recently decomposed dead. You know? uh, perhaps you can drink a ghost made Very from cool. those particular vintages. Outstanding, yeah, I like that. Interesting idea. Um, and, you know, for other games, you know, for games like Wraith or Geist or those involving ghosts, uh, you have a place for the restless dead there to gather or draw the origins from, or, like Malcolm says, uh, provide fuel for whatever is being drawn from the soil. And it also gains extra potency if you use it as a setting for a medieval game like Requiem for Rome or the Dark Ages Lie. You can have characters taken there against their will, interred with the plague-ridden and forced to make their escape or perish in fire. Um, for mage games, the place could make an interesting node or hallow, especially of the corrupted variety, uh, as well as a source of spirits for the less discerning summoner or those who want to call up something really unpleasant. And uh, for werewolf games, where spirits are more central to the setting, you can really develop the different types of spirits or unbrewed that dwell there, or might be drawn there by its corrupted nature. Now, what I liked about this legend, uh, the one of the mad doctor falling from the bell tower, was I found it especially interesting if you happen to be a player of Vampire the Masquerade. The La Sombra discipline of obtenebration features effects that mimic the story of the misty tendrils rising from the ground. Uh, that one stood out right away to me. So maybe there's an ancient La Sombra slumbering beneath an island. Uh, why there? What's he doing there? Is he somehow responsible for the uses to which the island has been put over the years? And if so, why? Vacation spot. Yeah. <laughs> <it's> the, <laughs> the sun is nice. But anyway, 160,000 dead. You know, 160,000. What if that number is only the beginning of something worse? If it's not a vampire sleeping there, but, say, an earthbound... The deaths may just be part of a centuries-long ritual to raise the ancient demon from sleep. And, of course, for hunters, the island is a source uh, of solid adventure ideas. Nearby tourist destinations could draw hunters to the area if they're threatened and allow the characters to set foot on Poveglia and experience its delights firsthand. So, anyway, finally, if any of our listeners have actually been to Venice uh, or even have photos of Poveglia or have set foot there, do drop us a line and let us know, and maybe we'll 
chronicle your experiences on a future installation of the secret frequency. Wow. Interesting information you brought us there, Mark. Uh, where you find the stuff we still have yet to know. You can thank Paige for that one. Oh, that's right. Paige Turner. It's pretty awesome, in fact. I... Sorry, Malcolm. Uh, Venice and the area around Venice is, is just fantastic for these kinds of things. Uh, and just because you have um, you have such a oh, sounds so cliche, a rich historical tapestry, <laughs> but uh, but it's true, right? Uh, you have you know you have this series of islands that were you know essentially a refuge from the collapse of civilization. Right? Yeah, places that were were never really meant for this kind of built-up habitation. Right? It's like a, a, a cultural sediment. Okay, folks. Sorry about that technical difficulty that we had with Skype for just a moment, and we're back. Malcolm, continue with your uh, your thought that you had going on there. Oh yeah. Well, like I was saying, it's it's easy to call something a rich historical tapestry, but in Venice's case, it actually is true. You have a series of islands that were, you know, probably never meant for this uh, this level of human habitation, right? Um, yeah. And you know, uh, settled by by people who are, you know, avoiding you know, the tumultuous changes in in the civilization around them, right? The the transition um, from you know from the Roman Empire to you know the post Roman Empire period, because of course it didn't it didn't fall so much as as kind of disorganize um, and not only thrive. But grow into this world power, right? And something, uh, something that punches punched above its weight politically and historically. Uh, it's it's something I really got introduced to when I was working on on the Venice Chronicles, the social network that was that had that fantasy Venice setting, and yes. um, and really, if uh, if you're in a dry spell in any sort of historical game, right? Uh, it's it's really kind of a go-to location, right? Or even a contemporary game, right? I mean, there's nothing that says you can't get on a plane and go there. Even right. if you're a vampire, you can go in a box, right? Yeah. So, um, I definitely recommend that Venice and that whole region. It's just it's interesting on so many levels. Well, I was, I was running a Dark Ages game uh, for a few years, and we'd, we'd just gone through the period of the Third Crusade, and the characters were just gravitating to Venice, you know, uh, with every chance they could go, they were getting ready to set up base there. Of course, with the onset of the Fourth Crusade, Venice really comes into a, a sudden massive blush of power. Mm-hmm. So, uh, for that, that entire period, yeah, a really exciting uh, place and time to game in. Uh, and I, I, I visited it years ago, but I, I was a kid then, so mm-hmm. certainly something... Uh, someplace worth going back to. Well, we'll definitely have to all check that out. And uh, Obviously, if anyone has any questions or they have any thoughts on this, just give us a shout-out to email, darkerdaysradio at gmail.com. <laughs> and let's move on to our next segment, uh, the original or classic World of Darkness, uh, The Ascension War Revisited. Yes. Well, today on the show, um, we're going to be concentrating almost entirely on the, on Mage, uh, Mage the Ascension to begin with, and Mage the Awakening a little later on. And we're going to mix things up a little bit, uh, show how you can take ideas from Awakening and put them in Ascension, and then later show how you can take some th- uh, adventure ideas from Ascension and throw them into Awakening. 
Now, Malcolm, you worked on uh, the Ascension book. Uh, yes, I did. Uh, how much input did you have on that book when you made it? How much input did I have on that book? Well, the for all of the um, for all of the the Time of Judgment books, the the format was very similar in that you had multiple options per game line, and none of them were really supposed to be official. Although developers kind of hemmed and hawed about that, and in the end. With Ascension, um, the one I worked on, Judgment, was supposed to be the uh, the storyline wrap-up, mm. basically. And uh, I was fortunate because I, at the time, had been, been running my game. And I'd been running it pretty close to the canonical setting. So it was, it was pretty easy for me to do the writing and the playtesting in tandem to get that done. That was a great experience, especially talking to... Um, to Kathleen Ryan, who wrote all of the uh, Amanda stories. Oh, Amanda, yeah, 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 yeah. I had this uh, really productive, like, six-hour phone call with her to sort of hash out uh, where the characters she'd been using uh, were coming from and what they were up to. Unfortunately, it's, a, it's one of those things where, you know, uh, the needs of a game, the needs of fiction are a bit different because there's a definite sort of end story for Amanda that unfortunately uh, we couldn't do. It's probably if you ever if you ever meet Kathy, you you could probably ask her about it. Um, oh, cool. But uh, and but the, Amanda's role is sort of something that ended up being uh, being one that the sort of default play group, right? That's going through judgment, uh, kind of kind of takes up, right? So that's sort of an example where you know you can't. You can't necessarily have fiction and play occupy the same space all the time, particularly when you have that big epic ending thing. Okay. And Marlon, cool. continue with what you were saying. Oh, um, what to say about that now that it's, uh, <laughs> it's been a few years, and it's, the original Judgment scenario was about 50 or 60,000 words, and it had to be cut back quite a bit. Was, um, it was based on my uh, my chronicle notes and a whole bunch of stuff. It was pretty crazy to go through you know all of these books, right? Like you know, there's the actually Thessalonica's prophecy in the um, in the mm. fragile path, right? And I have to go and you know well, I have to address this, right? <laughs> you can't drop a hook like that. Oh, the world's going to end, and you know babies are going to be lobotomized, and Martin Lockstep and Tanev is going to cry forever and you know if I don't talk about that then you know that makes me a bit of a bitch doesn't it so so uh, it required quite a bit of uh, quite a bit of pouring through those old books to get it figured out um, though functionally I think the main I guess the main thing and uh, the main idea that uh, that I thought was sort of at the heart of making ascension at the end was that um, was that being moral, um, being a good person, is uh, is something that you know that cannot be that can't be encompassed in uh, political or theological or an economic belief system by itself, right? Um, mm. Morality is an end in of itself. 
and we use frameworks to get to that point, but it's so easy, and this is, I think, one of the themes of Made to the Ascension as a whole, to let that framework rule us and to, uh, to let that framework be a way to justify our, our, our baser desires, so to speak, you know, the, right. the desire to power over others. Um, you know, the desire to the, the desire to enforce one's will without uh, without that sense of uh, compassion, um, personal responsibility, and responsibility for the for the well being of others, right? And that's the and the critique of the the critique of the technocracy is not really that it uses science, so it's bad. And I really wish people would shut the fuck up about that. Yeah, me too. Um, <laughs> but it's that, you know, you do have, you know, in the real world, you do have, um, you know, science not being used as science, but being used as a, as a framework to justify, you know, uh, policies of selfishness, right? Um, or right. policies of, I guess, a sort of cold utilitarianism that is ultimately selfishness realized on a mass scale, right? I mean, that's where you have the, you know, you have the Rand Corporation, you have uh, nuclear deterrence strategy. You have modern management theory, um, quality assurance. Right? I mean, you know, it, it's not that you know a bunch of us freelancers got together, right, and decided that you know uh, we hated flesh toilets, but we liked video games. So fuck the technocracy and bring on the virtual adepts. Uh, <laughs> play Xbox all day, uh, <laughs> but. Uh, um, it has more to do with that, but at the same time, one of the great things about um, about looking deep and moving up is, you know, we can we can talk about this, you know, uh, critique of a society where you know uh, selfishness is framed and justified um, through the lens of uh, technology, uh, capitalism, political systems, but you know, um, several strata up from there, you end up with uh, dudes in black suits and cyborgs you get to shoot. Right. Right. Well, exactly. And I mean, you've got, you know, you have these, <laughs> these ideas, but the, at the end of the day, you have to turn them into a game. Right. You have to play them into a game. And, and people have to be able to engage it on several, on several levels, right? You have to not right. only be able to have that, you know, you do a, a parkour kickflip over the hit mark's head, right? And then you blow <laughs> his head off with your, you know, your gun covered in uh, in self adhesive Enochian uh, characters, right? But uh, <laughs> you you have to you have to have more you have to have more depth on that because it's uh, I think for most of us you can't sustain uh, you can't sustain interest in a game with uh, with nothing but the action adventure engagement, right? Um, you need to be able to move. To move around through those types of engagements uh, with the with the game material to make it work for for an extended for extended chronicle. Right. Um, were we going to talk about how to pull ideas from Mark? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Just, just kind of picking out here. So <laughs> Mark, how yeah, could wanna, we I mean, um, how could we apply all this information to our game? You had some tips for everybody. 
Yeah, what's uh, interesting about some of the stuff that Malcolm was saying is uh, it, it, it echoes, um, it's echoed rather by some of the, uh, the material to do, to do with the Ascension War. Um, you know, uh, the, these ideas turned into conflict, these ideas, uh, these differing philosophies turned into uh, material in game. Uh, and the Ascension War appears in both Mage the Ascension and Mage the Awakening, and it, it, it's subtly different in both game lines. Um, now, for those who know Ascension, or for those who don't, uh, in Mage the Ascension, the Ascension War is essentially uh, an ongoing conflict for the future Ascension of humanity, primarily between the traditions on the one hand and the technocracy on the other. Um, Mage the Awakening also has this, but it's something different. Uh, and what I want to do is show how the Awakening version of the Ascension War can be applied to the original Mage the Ascension game. Um, now, for people who are familiar with Ascension but don't know the Awakening setting, there's a few bits of information to throw out here. Uh, firstly, uh, you need to look at the idea of exarchs and oracles in the supernal realms. Now, the supernal realms are, uh, and Malcolm, you've got to step in and correct me if I mangle this here, but uh, they're a higher reality, uh, the source of magic, the true heavens, a plane of existence of which our universe is but a fallen corruption. Now, you can compare this with the Mage of the Ascension, uh, which featured the pure ones, um, who were beings, uh, entities, most of whom existed in, in an elevated state removed from our universe. Now, the pure ones may or may not be the source of avatars, uh, the awakened, active part of a mage's soul. And I've always seen these as similar to the supernal, con uh, similar to the supernal concept from Mage the Awakening. And, you know, it's interesting that you say that because one of the, the things um, that Bill Bridges was, was uh, good enough to note and I think sometimes gets lost uh, when we talk about awakening is mm -hmm. that the uh, the idea of the supernal realms are not just uh, you know they're not just this place you go they're not just in the sky right no with these cool you know gods and fae and things with the ideas that there's it is it's supposed to be this uh, this ultimate internal spiritual state right and there's the the microcosm macrocosm concept right yeah where yeah. you you know where striving striving without is striving within right so mm. so that's a good that's a good insight. Right? And so the supernal realms can, you know, they can fulfill they can fulfill the function of the avatar in many ways because they are they are that state of being to which one strives, right? Right. Um, as well as a place that you go to. Right. Now, one of the things is that awakening sort of bi has a bias toward it being that place you go to, right? Just because it works on. It works on a narrative level um, in all sorts of ways, right? I mean, it's hard to it's hard to describe, you know, monsters coming out of your soul, but it's easy to describe them from uh, coming from another plane of existence, right? So yeah. it makes it a little more accessible, but ultimately, you know, um, it's the same place, right? And what what struck me if 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 the pure ones uh, are the source of magic of mages' avatars, then they they. The pure ones are therefore empowering subjective reality and differing paradigms. They're a part of a supernal reality that, you know, exists above and beyond the subjective realms experienced by mages, but at the same time, they're creating those subjective realities. Um, so from a certain perspective, in Ascension, the supernal is, in a way, even further removed from the world than it is in Awakening. Uh, it certainly seems harder to, uh, to, to tap into, and not that it's easy in Awakening, but uh, you know what I mean. <laughs> now, the Exarchs... Uh, 
these are ancient mages who ascended in lost times to the supernal. They took control of the heavens, of reality, and rewrote it to suit their own desires. And the oracles of awakening are other ascended mages who, who fight the exarchs, kind of guerrilla style, trying to put right what the exarchs have corrupted, or so they say. In the end, who really knows? Now, players of Mage of the Ascension will, will already be able to see some parallels here with the uh, with the Ascension's uh, oracles, uh, the Aswadim, uh, the Ascended Masters of the of the Order of Reason. Um, so right away, there you've got you've got enough parallels to see how the two uh, the two concepts can can equate to one another on a base level. Now, as for the Ascension War itself, as presented in Mage of the Awakening, um, it's a conflict waged by the Exarchs against their rivals. Uh, actions of cabals in the mortal world are one manifestation of this war. Uh, other conflicts takes place in other realms far removed from this one, with spells and magics that would overturn history if used on Earth. Uh, combatants might, for example, battle a rising god by denying him access to his cult, or thwart the plans of an archmaster, or subvert religions, upend economies. In other words, exactly the kind of conflicts you'd expect the oracles, the Aswadim, and the uh, ascended masters to be involved with in Mage of the Ascension. So, in essence, Awakening's Ascension War is like the Ascension War from Mage the Ascension, but it's taken to a far grander scale and occurring on a far more elevated plane. Now, let's uh, draw this back to the game table. How can we use this in game? Mm. Well, there's five, five immediate things that, you know, for me, spring to mind right away. Um, there's a thing called the Pax Arcanum which is a series of rules, a set of rules that are agreed between combatants that keep the Ascension War from spilling over into the physical world. Now, all sides cheat to one degree or another, though. So there you go, there's an adventure seat right there figuring out how to cheat at the Ascension War, how to break the Pax Arcanum and not get caught. Uh, they have hooks for adventures right away there. Another interesting idea is the concept of the Okemata. Um, that's O-C-H-E-M-A-T-A, if I'm mispronouncing that. Uh, now, because the Exarchs are removed from the world by the Ascension War and by the Pax Arcanum, if they need to get themselves involved on a personal level, if they need to get their hands dirty, what they do is they take a, a fragment of their, of their spirit, as it were, and send it down into the material world, and it takes on a form that's called an Okemata. And it can look like anything, you know, it can take a whole variety of disguises. Um, so this is a, a way of having, uh, I suppose, the, uh, the forces against whom you're struggling actually manifest in the story. Um, on the one hand, it can make cool opponents for powerful mages, but the Okamata are super powerful and extremely dangerous, and you really wouldn't want to put one of those in your chronicle uh, uh, lightly. Um, they also make interesting players behind the scenes, these enigmatic, shadowy figures, these reflections of gods that are cast upon the face of the world, uh, changing everything around them simply by their mere presence. Now, what really interests me is when you start to mix things up a little bit further. Um, the effects of the Ascension War, I think, can impact on the material world in interesting ways. Because the Ascension War takes place outside of our reality, so you can say that it takes place outside of time itself, as we understand it. So its effects might not be felt in a chronological order. So for an example, an exarch might strike against his rivals in the supernal realms. On Earth, this could be reflected as the Albigensian Crusade against the Cathars in the early 13th century, for example. So his rival then strikes back, and this counter-strike manifests as the Permian-Triassic extinction event 250 million years ago. Uh, there's a further counter-strike, which then appears as, I don't know, um, 
the, the fall of a country's government uh, in the early 21st century. Uh, the idea being that the effects of the Ascension War are simply incomprehensible to mortals and to most mages too. And we do not see... Sorry, carry on. Well, one thing to know, oh, is, um is when I, when I work on the, um, the Dark Master there, uh, one thing that, uh, that I wanted to make sure was that there was always a role for your basic cabal, right? So there are, you know, Earth is the place where you need, like, you know, everybody needs stuff from Earth, right? Yeah. Uh, um, even though it's it's one of the, the tricky things to design right around in Awakening, right, is that, you know, uh, is the world, uh, the phenomenal universe is, you know, is this dirty, crappy shadow of the supernal, right? But it still needs to be necessary for gameplay purposes. Yeah. So you have a couple of, of concepts there. Like one thing I introduced in... Um, in the uh, Sears of the Throne book is the idea that, you know, the, uh, instead of the, the standard cosmological model that, uh, that many mages and, and I think most fans assume, you know, it could be that the fall world is sort of the, is kind of the, the shield that, uh, that the Exarchs use against the Abyss, right? They raise this thing up right, to control what's beneath them, but, you know, that doesn't mean they're not afraid of it. Uh, because right. it is, it is the thing that is outside of their rule, outside the rules and outside of their grasp, right? So instead of having the abyss just be uh, conceived of as this place between the fallen and the supernal, right? Uh, it can be this place. Um, it can be uh, the fallen world can be that layer around the supernal, and the abyss can also be on the outside, right? Because That's interesting. Uh, yeah, because you know it. They don't have any real spatial relationship. Right? They only have symbolic relationships. Right? So all of yeah. the maps that you have, uh, um, all the maps that fans like to draw between, you know, the Fallen Supernal and you know Arcadia and the other Arcadia and <laughs> and wherever demons come from, right? All of those are uh, none of those are maps describing actual spatial relationships, right? They're no. describing only sort of they're only, they're only describing um, you know conceptual and, and occult relationships, right? So you can have these multiple occult relationships, but that took me a bit off. What I was going to say is you know there's that role that the fall world plays. So you know if somebody monkeys with it in a way that lets the abyss see through and perhaps even touch the supernal, obviously the the exarchs or whoever else is in charge there, because God knows who's up there. Uh, yeah. You know, is probably not going to like that, especially if somebody finds some way to let let the abyss slip through in some selective way. That you know, you know, maybe it doesn't doesn't kill everybody. Maybe it just you know gets rid of the gentry because they're real pain in the ass or something, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> or uh, but you also have uh, 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 quintessences, uh, which are. Uh, components that are needed for the really big magic, for the Imperial Mysteries, right? And those are right. things that you you find um, in the Fallen World, right? Sometimes they're, you know, they're, they're difficult to find, and, you know, the easy way for, um, for a Secret Master to find them, of course, would be to, you know, uh, walk in, blow a whole bunch of things up, and 
grab it. But of course, if he or she does that, then then that's breaking the rules, right? And that's bad for everybody. And then you know everybody gets together and hits the reset button, and uh, then some future civilization discovers magic and postulates that there once was a great magical civilization. Let's take all exactly. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, well, I want to get onto that in just a minute because I had uh, I had uh, some some interesting ideas about that in a moment. But, yeah. But, you can't forget, like for tabletop play, you can't forget that the, like the fallen world is is a shit. It's great um, in that that's where you know, that's that's the arena that matters to you, right? So that's where you play exactly. Sake of those big maneuvers, as well. Um, so connecting those big maneuvers to stuff that's happening on the ground, um, not just in terms of the after effects, but also in terms of, of being able to, you know. Being able to build up these imperial spells, for example, right, um, or it being necessary to have the have the fallen world have some sort of characteristic um, in order in order for one side or the other to succeed, um, instead of having it uh, having the fallen world just take blowback, right? Right. That makes sense. Well, yeah, well I, mean, I mean, it's interesting because Mage the Ascension already has something a little bit like this, uh, uh, an intrusion from the supernal um, that has manifest effects in the game world, uh, specifically the entelechy, um, an intrusion of the one into reality where it manifested uh, on that. It was the Night of Fana, I think it was called, uh, with ripples that echo back and forth across time. So I thought it might be interesting to have more than one such event in the Ascension setting. Um, now, when you were working on the Ascension line, Malcolm, did you did you conceive of the Antelike as a sing- singular event? I mean, do you imagine there could be room for more than one such intrusion from the Supernal, so to speak? Or is there something about the nature of Telos and the Antelike that, that requires it to be unique? Uh, I think you could certainly have multiple events, but it gets hard to, you know, it gets hard to track these causal relationships when, you know, with the Antelike, right? You know, the event goes backwards and forwards through time, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, so you have some stuff that's kind of screwing with causality, right? The, the entelechy exists to to bring the one back into exist, uh, to bring the one into being, right? So that there's this complete cycle of experience, you know, returning to and from ascension. Mm. Um, I think you could have. Um, I think you could have multiple such events. Um, in the context of, of the Ascension book, the um, I think the way it works is because there's this you know there's this sort of omega point for for humanity at the end of it. Um, yeah. If you're using that model, right, things sort of contribute to that. Um, but at the same time, there's no reason uh, not to have say. Um, an antithesis uh, event, right? Mm. Um, however, where that event would come from, see, in the context of ascension, right? The the Nefandi are, you know, the Nefandi are not the, you know, oh, we're to- they're not the badass guys bringing their Lovecraftian horror. They're um, not the opposite. They're just, yeah, right? exactly. Yeah, they they're, you know, their motives are ultimately personal, right? Yeah. And and what they're doing is they're misinterpreting a sort of unmediated experience of the of the ground of being, right? The yeah. The kind of other that, you know, you need for, you know, for there to be this crazy, you know, 
um, consensual reality soup. You need a bowl to contain it in, right? You know, and that right. bowl probably contains stuff like, you know, uh, gravity and evolution and, uh, you know, and all that other good stuff that allow us to, you know, be people and have experiences that are, you know, at all relatable to one another. Um, instead of being, you know, funky Star Trek energy beings or whatever it would be, <laughs> if it really was totally, <laughs> totally subjective. Um, so, you know, uh, I plugged the Nathandi into that. And I know a lot of people didn't like that, but I thought it was important on a couple of levels, both because, and I guess we'll get into this in a little bit, I think uh, I think the world of darkness could stand to not, not keep uh not keep grabbing stuff from uh, from lovecraftiana um right right and well, i i just like i just like the way that the neverborn was were, were kind of spun on their head in the final kind of sequence of ascension i thought that was really quite quite interesting to read well it comes from a very simple observation right because you have these like you know oh, i'm a crazy nefandi guy and i like to you know i like to eat babies on an altar right <laughs> Uh, I'm going to wash my hands afterwards. How much I love this Cthulhu clone that was created by a writer hitting a bunch of keys randomly. And <laughs> the thing is, if you go to if you go to the source material, right, the the mythos are not, you know, you know, they're not Satan with tentacles. They really don't care if you eat babies or are no. nice to babies. It's it's irrelevant to their experience. <laughs> um so I asked myself that question, well, you know, why are these defendants eating these babies at the altar, right? Or, you know, doing whatever other horrible things, right? And I came up with a few ideas. Right? You know, part of it is that, you know, it's a nihilistic purging of one's own identities to, uh, to get a kind of enlightenment to reach that ground of being, right? Um, and, uh, you know, and get to know that, but at the same time, you know, that simply begs the question again, you know, why, why is there some kind of metaphysical evil being served, um, you know, when, uh, when one is supposed to be appealing to these alien beings, right? You know, they're alien, they're not evil, right? They, you know, yeah. they represent, uh, they represent a sort of, uh, death of the, you know, anthropocentric mentality, right? Um, I know a lot of, a lot of people are Lovecraft scholars will disagree, but let's just pretend that I'm right here. Um, <laughs> this is impossible. <laughs> um, I think the mythos that, that's strong enough to work with, right? It's, it's the acceptance of, of a universe that is not all about us, right? Right. Um, and, you know, that's something that's not evil. It's just true. It's just um, indifferent to true, yeah. Majors are supposed to look for truth. And looking for truth is supposed to be something that's basically virtuous. So you can't have them be... You can't have them... You can't have a metaphysical source of evil really stand in the Ascension setting. Right? For that reason. Yeah. Because... Um, you can only have evil persons. You can only have immoral persons. You can only have people be bad. So, getting back to having this sort of, let's say, you have this counter uh, entelechy, right? 
Um, mm. Certainly what Voras is trying is, is an event like that, and you can easily shift something like that where, uh, where you have a mage go, like, you know, well, fuck it. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to, you know, I'm going to break the rules, right? Um, and you can project that into the past, right? Um, mm. Or, you know, or you can have it be another, you know, decision by a person or a group of persons. I think in the Ascension setting, because it's about individual choices, it's about uh, it's about taking ownership ownership of your own moral responses instead of um, instead of relegating them to being part of this inevitable uh, political, social, religious model. Right? I think you also have to have the antagonist do the same thing if they're gonna if they're gonna create these big events that hold back the final enlightenment of humanity. Yeah. Or you cool. Can just or the implications of of judgment of, of what's in a section. You can have it not be that inevitable cycle, right? And you can have um, a bit more confusion as you have these uh, well-intentioned people trying to, you know, trigger the eschaton, right, and have it uh, take place, have it fire off at various places um, in history, and you know, have this legitimate question as to whether it's the right one. Um, yeah. Or have the PCs try to somehow, you know, um, chop them up and find the effects they like the best. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, there's two more, two more little nuggets I wanted to uh, to draw out of the uh, Awakening style Ascension War um, for this section. Yes. Uh, one of those is 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 native to uh, Mage the Ascension, and one is a little bit more Awakening in style. Um, so the one that's more linked to uh, Ascension would be the War of Ruins. Now in Mage the Ascension, this is a series of conflicts uh, that brought down several prominent Horizon Realms. Now if you recast it in the light of Awakening's version of the Ascension War, uh, the War of Ruins could then be a side effect of these conflicts that are occurring between the Exarchs, the Oracles, the Archmasters who serve them, the Aswadim, etc. Um, Horizon Realms, whose create creators or uh, controllers become too closely tied to the Ascension War, can find themselves becoming casualties of that war. Now, this this allows you to have powerful mages or Archmasters who have deliberately hidden themselves away to avoid notice and avoid becoming embroiled in the Ascension War. Lesser mages, uh, like the player characters, who encounter them may find it impossible to understand why these supposedly super powerful Archmasters are hiding away from a conflict that has no apparent uh, analog or correlate in the real world. So if you want to keep the idea from Mage Revised that the most powerful mages are now absent from the world, but you don't maybe like the rationales that are given in Revised, you can use Awakening as Ascension War instead. It's a reason why this is happening. And in the same vein, the, the Avatar Storm uh, might simply be a side effect of some terrible conflict that's spilled over from the supernal realms. It, it doesn't need to be related to exploding antediluvians and spirit nukes. You know, you can, you can have the same effects through other methods as well. Uh, and finally on that front, um, Awakening does a really good job of portraying the rewriting of history. Um, the Ascension War can result in history itself being rewritten. Uh, so whole times, whole eras, places might be written out of existence. So the ruins, to use an example from Ascension, the ruins of the ancient city of Bat uh, cannot be found because it no longer exists. In fact, it has now never existed. Uh, you can have certain truths or secrets that can have been completely removed from reality as if they never were. 
Now, such rewritings of history might not be complete, though. There may be uh, relics of Bat uh, still lingering here and there, embedded in the current version of history, like nuggets of buried gold. And, and if you're into uh, uh, crazy archaeolog archaeological anomalies, you can compare this with those kind of anomalies that you know, talk about metal spheres found buried in ancient rock or human footprints that have supposedly been found in sediment that dates back 50 million years. Um, these could be relics of timelines that have now been erased. You can have mages who can remember these lost histories, wandering about the place, trying to understand what has happened to their world. And this kind of thing, for me, makes for excellent adventure fodder. Uh, have the characters find a ruin dating from Lost Bat or Enoch or, or Atlantis. Its, no, its origins no longer exist, but the ruins remain. You can have the meter mage who remembers things that have been erased from the world, but who can provide lore that no one else knows. Or they specifically have to go find somebody, the last survivor of a timeline that's long since vanished. Have the mages fighting to restore something that's been erased, or become involved in grand schemes to remove the past from existence. And I always think that this ties in well with uh, Mage of the Ascension's conflicting versions of history that are presented in the tradition books and the convention books, especially the earlier ones. Um, seen in this light, those various versions conflict with each other because everybody is remembering a different past. So basically, if you, if you import Awakening's version of the Ascension War into Mage of the Ascension, you're, you're looking at a large-scale backdrop here, uh, but one that can inform play down to the level of individual cabals, uh, and provide you know, countless opportunities for adventure seeds, as we've just seen over the last few minutes. Um, mm. The Exarchs, they make an interesting replacement or addition to the technocracy. Um, now, in Awakening, the Exarchs, uh, these gods that are hiding out in the Supernal, they're served in the material world by an order of mages called the Seers of the Throne. Malcolm mentioned them briefly just now. Uh, the Seers of the Throne fulfill many of the same functions as the technocracy, uh, but they add a few more options into the mix. Uh, you could, for example, and this has been done to one degree or another in Awakening, you could make the technocracy just one part of the Seers of the Throne, one of its ministries. You know, maybe you don't like the technocracy or you want something on a grander or scarier scale. Or maybe you just love Awakening's background, uh, but prefer Ascension's rules and want to import it into the older game. Or maybe you like the, uh, the Jail of Night articles that we featured a couple of shows ago and want more examples of how to use that kind of Gnostic setting in play. Uh, if so, yeah, Mage the Awakening's Ascension War is for you. I've been using something similar in my own Ascension games, and I'm finding it, uh, it hits the mark, uh, nine times out of ten anyway. Um, if you want direct source material, you want to check out the books, uh, specifically Seers of the Throne, Secrets of the Ruined Temple, and Reign of the Exarchs, uh, for stuff that you can plug into your game immediately. Um, now, Malcolm, you've worked on a number of uh, books in the Awakening line. Are there others that you would recommend beyond those three to to get um, information on the Ascension War and using it in your game? Um, using it in your uh, your Ascension game or your... Yeah, you know, in your uh, Ascension game to hold it back. Yes. Well, one of the one of the things you were mentioning earlier about um, about, you know, these lost histories, I think that's uh, interesting because uh, it's something Bill Bridges and I talked about when I was working on the Judgment Scenario for Ascension and also for the Sons of Aether um, revised tradition book. Because there's, oh, quite of, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. there's quite a bit of time travel in there. Um, and it was Bill's position that basically when you had these alternate timelines, uh, typically what would happen is, um, is they, you know, they might leave some stuff in the material world, but they eventually sort of get shunted off into the Umbra. 
mm. to so you have these uh, you have these umbral realms that are these these developed alt histories, right? And uh, you know, and the more divergent they get, the more they sort of get you know uh, shunted off uh, further and further until you know they might be the seed of a more developed alternate universe, sort of like the way the uh, marauders, you know, the crazier they get, the more distant they get from reality until they yeah. you know, might become the, the seeds of their own their own universes out there somewhere. Um, and that's something that's talked about in the Ascension book too, in the, in the fifth chapter. There's a whole bunch of resources, and one of them is reconciling the various versions of the world of darkness, right? By using this sort of, um, you know, occult alt history, um, you know, parallel world concept, right? And there's a there's a bit of a discussion of that um, for awakening for you know, world of darkness. Um, that's a good question. I think. Uh, hmm. <laughs> no, you got me. I'm drawing a blank. <laughs> I'll, I'll only think of something when we're in the middle of something else. That, that, that's fine. Anyway, cool. uh, as always, oh, drop um, us... Yeah. Uh, reliquary. I think that would be a good one. Okay, reliquary. Um, All right. Yeah. Um, and anything with items, right? Uh, also, mysterious places. That is very good, yes. Yeah, that would work because, well. It's you know a great way to justify these things is to have them be these these fragments of other histories. Um, cool. Used uh, I used actually a statue from um, mysterious places in my game, um, and it was quite successful. And it was eventually going to uh, going to turn into something very much like this, where you know there's you know there is another history coming through, right, through the medium of this of this statue. But right now my my own World of Argus game is on hold. So so those are my suggestions. Okay, great. All right, good Thanks for your uh, suggestions. And as always drop us a line at darkerdaysradio at gmail dot com. And you can <laughs> hit us up at darkerdays.tk and uh let us know how your experiences work out. Just uh tell us about how your games are going. Uh and uh, just if you have any questions for Malcolm, of course, we can forward on to them and uh, see what he has to say about that. And we will be right back after this. <laughs> Listening to the Darker Days podcast. More fun than being smacked in the head with a wooden board. All right, folks, uh, we're back in uh, Darker Days Radio with uh, Mark, Vince, and our special guest, Malcolm Shepard. How are you doing? <laughs> Welcome back. Uh, we're going to be moving on to our new World of Darkness, or the current World of Darkness segment, and uh, we have some information about that, the Loom of Fate. Right, Mark? Yes, indeed. Um, just as we took some ideas from uh, Mage of the Awakening and threw them back through the years to Mage of the Ascension, right now we're going to reach back into the misty purple past and pull out the Loom of Fate adventure for you. And our Loom of Fate was the first full adventure for Mage of the Ascension, not counting the little one that came bundled with the storytelling screen. Mm. came out in 1993. 
Um, and its opening chapter was actually featured in the back of Mage the Ascension First Edition. So we were all primed and ready for its release. Um, it's about a girl called Nona Weaver who is destined to be transformed into a spirit to replace an aged and dying entity that is holding together the spiritual underpinnings of San Francisco. It's about the factions that want her to be transformed, those who don't, and it's about the player characters caught in the middle. Um, and what we're going to do here is take a look at this adventure and show you how, in fact, you can plug this into your Mage the Awakening Chronicle with... Uh, just a tiniest little bit of tweaking. Now, it's still available uh, through various secondhand outlets. You can buy the PDF from DriveThruRPG for only $5. Um, it's also available uh, as part of the Mage Chronicles Volume 3 bundle, which costs you a little bit more, $8.98. Uh, and in that case, if you bought the bundle, your extra $3.98 would also get you Chaos Factor, which is another early Mage adventure featuring Samuel Hay. <laughs> so I'll... Uh, I'll leave you to decide whether that's worth the extra money. <laughs> it's always I'm worth every penny. Oh, you are? <laughs> cool. Yeah. Oh, look at Sammy there. He looks unhappy. <sighs> He's always unhappy. He's in the old world of darkness. <laughs> now, Luma Fate opens with uh, extensive background details on the spiritual state of play in the city. Um, it's tied heavily to Ascension's cosmology and, by default, that of Werewolf the Apocalypse on which it's based. Now, Awakening players, you can pretty much ignore this and simplify it thus. Um, basically, it's this. An, an ancient spirit called Cobb underlies San Francisco, or whatever your home city is in your chronicle, and Cobb is dying. Cobb's decline is causing real problems for the city above. Now, in San Francisco, this is obviously earthquakes and the like, but you can recast this however you like. Riots, unrest, political corruption, disease, whatever. Uh, the idea is that the material reflects the spiritual, and when one suffers, so does the other. Now, in the original Ascension version of the adventure, the technocracy uh, wants to fix this problem. They're grooming a mortal mage to replace Cobb. Uh, specifically, they're grooming Norna Weaver. Um, marauders, who are mages given over to chaos and madness, uh, they want Cobb to die. Chaos will result. Yay, Discordia! <laughs> um, uh, Norna doesn't know where she stands, and it's for the player characters to help her choose her fate. So, the interplay between chaos and order, freedom and control, destiny and free will, these are the central themes of uh, Loom of Fate. Now, it has a few features or bugs depending on how you want to look at it um, because it's an early mage uh, the ascension adventure it has lots of mages in it uh, in fact all the NPCs are mages all of them Norna is a mage um, the people who want to convert her they're mages her priest is a mage um, even the local reporter is a mage in fact the local reporter is a cyborg mage <laughs> um, oh wait Norna's Norna's mum isn't a mage um, although she is a clone so you might want to strip this back um I'd scale down the number of mages in the adventure, keep the mages special, keep them rare. You can probably do without the cyborg, for example. Um, as a political group, the traditions, uh, the nine traditions, are non-existent, more or less, because as early mage, um, they hadn't really started to, to develop them as political entities yet. So for awakening players, you might want to consider removing the concilium and the pentacle orders or consigning them to the background, given it's a tale about the individuals. Uh, however, there are ways to keep them in play, um, primarily by replacing the technocracy with the concilium, with the pentacle orders. So now it's the local concilium that wants Norna to replace Cobb in order to save the city. And all of a sudden, you, 
yeah, well, all of a sudden your supposed villains are not so easily labelled. Um, it gives you more interesting moral dilemmas to play with. Um, the adventure opens, the adventure it's proper opens with a car crash that demonstrates Norna's unconscious powers, identifies her as a mage and a figure of importance. Now, you can use this in Awakening pretty much as is. Uh, note the presence of the cyborg mage reporter, though. And also note that the Marauder mages put in an appearance here. Uh, and they're portrayed as a kind of crazy Mad Max science fiction biker gang. Uh, I'd, I'd drop them from. One of them is like, like Briarios from Appleseed. Yeah. <laughs> I'd drop them from this scene, uh, no matter what version of mage I was running, because they're really rather silly. Um, if you need to use them, you can replace them with Chaos Spirits. Uh, a cabal of Discordian mages, or even the Celesti might work. Um, I don't know, Malcolm, uh, you're probably more familiar with Awakening on this front than me. What uh, what would you recommend as a good replacement for Marauders that keeps some of the feel from uh, Ascension, but works with it in Awakening? You know what? I, I might make them actual spirits. <laughs> um, hmm. Right? Or, or, you know, or because this is the crossover-friendly uh, New World War of Darkness, fuck it, make them werewolves. Um, <laughs> cool. Pure. Right? Pure, yeah. Um, you know, if you have this situation where you know San Francisco is, you know, supposed to get earthquake to death, right? And the only reason it's not uh, that's not happening is for the convenience of the you know monkey meat puppets standing on it. Well, you know, that's that's a problem <laughs> that should be fixed, right? Um, mm, interesting. It, and even for. Um, even for kind of more uh, more conventional group of werewolves, you know, you do have this dilemma where uh, you, know, you have you have this blatantly sort of artificial spirit ecology compromising event that uh, you know, that will nevertheless you know keep a whole bunch of people alive. So it makes the characters can ask themselves where their values lie, and it's uh, it makes it an interesting question, especially if if you want to, you know, if you want to get back into the zesty, ecology-minded uh, uh, feel of werewolf that, you know, that uh, might steal a few cues from Apocalypse. So we're having a, a meta cross-inspiration thing. Um, cool. <laughs> a good one. You know, you have, you know, you have the interest of the spirit ecology um, against, against the, you know, against what's good for people in a very palpable way, right? So I think it'd be good for them, um, for that motorcycle. Then again, yeah. robots on motorcycles does kick ass. So I don't get rid of the two. It's true. Well, when I first... Sorry, carry on. Well, I'm looking through it right now, eh? And mutant alligators, man. Yeah, I was going to get to them later. But <laughs> <laughs> um... I don't know. I think making it the local uh, consilium is a great idea. I think this would be a great way to do uh, Mysterium as bad guys because they're mm. the order that's probably one of the hardest to do as bad guys. Um, right? Because, you know, basically this is you know, occult mad science that's going on here. It's the sort of thing yeah. Mysterium is equipped to do. Um, and it's exactly the sort of thing where, you know, they can easily see themselves being in the right. Exactly. Sacrificing this one individual to fix it. Another another good one to use uh, 
uh, here in this in the opening scene of the uh, of the, the car crash is the spirit of Sixth Avenue and Lake Street from the Summoner's book, um, which as regular listeners will know, I just loved to bits when I reviewed it a couple of episodes ago. Yeah. It's a spirit of an accident black spot and fits really well here. Oh, that's a great... Now from here... Yeah, it is. It's fantastic. Now, from here, we move on to a scene of confrontation with Norna's priest. Now, this one is awesome, and you can keep this scene intact, pretty much unchanged. Uh, Norna's priest, Father Williams, was once selected to replace Cobb, but the transformation process went wrong, and he's now this awful part spider mutant who hides his arachnoid features beneath his priestly robes. Uh, it's a great little scene, uh, and you would, I think you would fuck with that at your peril, because it's, uh, it's really fantastic and makes a, a great horror blip in the first uh, part of the adventure. There's also a great scene with a fortune teller who uses the tarot to foreshadow the events of the story. Uh, and this was actually before the mage tarot was released. So the adventure presents its own version of the tarot at the back, tailored to the events of the story. And of course, you can use the tarot decks that were made either for Awakening or Ascension with only a little work. Um, there's a section on investigations that has a brief discussion of local mage cabals. Now, these you could port directly over into Awakening. There's only a paragraph or two of detail on them. Uh, it's good, especially if you believe that no mage game is complete without the club way down. Uh, or you could replace them with cabals from your own chronicle with no problem. There's also detailed coverage of the local Umbra, which in Awakening would, I guess, best be represented by the Shadow Realm. There's some interesting stuff there, and I'd say you could keep that probably intact. Although you might not want to use elements like Ascension's pattern web that tailor your descriptions to Awakening's cosmology. One other scene that I think has got to be included is one set at Norna's house. And in the original adventure, her parents were murdered by the technocracy when they tried to prevent the technocracy from using Norna in their schemes to replace Cobb. So her father's dead, and her mother was replaced by a clone. Now, maybe you don't want to use the idea of a clone. Um, if so, I'd say consider making her some kind of golem or simulacrum or other magical construct. This really helps reinforce the horror of the scene when the characters discover the mother's real body stowed away in the attic, preferably, pre preferably while the rest of the cabal are sharing milk and cookies with the cloned version down in the kitchen. Uh, it's a great scene with real nice. tension and creepiness. It works really nicely. Um, it's followed by a fantastic scene talking to her father's ghost at a local cemetery. You can use this again as is. There's a great bit of exposition there and includes excellent advice on having the ghost possess one of the characters and shows you how you can get the player of the possessed character to impart useful info in play. And that's just good advice for ghosts and possessions in games anywhere. Um, the Marauder Biker Gang from Space make another appearance here, but uh, if you go with Malcolm's cool suggestion of maybe representing them with spirits or the pure, which I, I really love that, uh, they, they can fit in quite well, actually. Now, speaking of the Concilium, there's an interesting cutscene in the adventure that shows the deliberation of the Technocracy Symposium regarding the Norna Weaver situation. Um, for Awakening, this is a great place to feature the Concilium. The possibility exists for the characters to gatecrash the gathering, and then Ascension, this inevitably turned into a cyborg-laden bloodbath. Uh, well, unless you axe the scene, like I always have. <laughs> but for Awakening, uh, you, can, you can get real mileage out of this, especially for the more politically-minded majors in your cabal. Um, unlike Ascension, where I, felt the, I never felt the scene worked, in Awakening, it's actually a fantastic addition to the adventure. And there's also a potential invitation to a meeting with the head of the project, uh, Dr. Ken Himitsu, um, which works really well in this context if you replace him with a powerful concilium mage who takes the characters off to one side and explains to them, look, guys, we need your help here, you know, and lays it on the line. And that, that, that puts the moral dilemma front and center for the characters. 
Now, there's also a good deal of old-style Mage of the Ascension wackiness in the scenes that follow here that you may want to ignore or adapt as you see fit. Um, things like the cyborg mage journalist's home apartment, uh, a local hospital with crazy magical technology machinery all over it, uh, a hidden laboratory tucked away in the spirit world. You know, check out the tone of your home game and decide whether you want to keep these intact. For a grittier feel, they're probably a bit too over the top. But you may well find inspiration there for stuff that you can use. And uh, if, you're, if you're willing to play a little bit more fast and loose, it's, it's cool stuff. It's good fun. Now, from there, you're moving toward the climax of the adventure. There's strong attention paid to dealing with Norna and her own opinions on the matter. Does she accept her fate to save the city from disaster? Does she reject it, preferring not to be transformed into an immortal spider monster? Um, how do the characters respond to her choice? Do they dare go against the local concilium to save Norna? Do they force Norna's hand in order to win political capital with their superiors? Hmm. These choices, at the end of the day, you know, they're at the very heart of the story. Um, and you, know, you should be sure to give them the space and time they need. So the finale, therefore, is quite open. We're given plenty of details on Cobb and his realm and what the characters might do there. Uh, there's full coverage of the technocracy's base where the transformation will be carried out. And if you're replacing the technocracy with more occult-minded mages or the concilium, you could need to recast this section out of whole cloth. Or you could portray it as containing machines created from ancient Atlantean sciences. Uh, you could even send the characters off on a side quest to recover machines capable of carrying out Norna's transformation. So there's, there's plenty there to work with. And of course, with the alternate possible outcomes, excuse me, the adventure presents a number of alternate resolutions for Norna and the city as a whole. If Norna flees or is killed, of course, you're looking at potential disaster for your home city. But, you know, maybe that's something you could roll with. It makes for interesting sequels, after all. Uh, and if she agrees to the transformation or has it forced upon her, you can resolve the adventure with some really nice twists on the themes of control and freedom and choice and destiny. And these are going to be themes that will resonate with your players, given what their characters have gone through to get this far. So well, there you have it, uh, Loom of Fate, an underrated classic, I think, but not without its flaws, or cyborgs, or bikers, or, yeah, mutant alligators. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, but where the whole really does transcend the sum of its parts. And as we have seen, it's remarkably easy to translate into awakening terms. Um, so check it out. Uh, weave your own stories at the Loom, and let us know how you get on. Excellent, excellent. Uh, definitely pick that up through uh, Drive Through RPG and uh, let us know. Go to the forums, wildgamesproductions.com/forums. Tell us about your experiences. We'd love to hear about it. And it's it's a good scan. It's it's some of them aren't great quality. This one's good quality. It's readable, printable. Uh, it's good stuff. Excellent. Now let us let us uh, move along and go to the question and answer period of the show. Everyone's been waiting for this. We have tons of people come to the forums. We've been broadcasting on Twitter for quite some time. And uh, let's go to the first question. Mark, want to nab that first question from Gotham yeah, Lord? Yeah, um, question, question from uh, Gotham Lord. He wanted to know, uh, what are some of your influences, Malcolm, for the design of Mage the Awakening and the rest of its continued line of books? Um, well, um, yeah. hmm. That's a good question. I think uh, when Bill was sort of corralling us uh, to start working on Mage, uh, it was back in uh, well, it was, a, it was a few years ago, and uh, and we started sending email back and forth. We had one meeting at Gen Con for about an hour to try and hash things out to make sure we were all kind of on the same page in terms of of sort of 
design objectives and everything, right? I mean, really, this is um, this is very much uh, Bill Bridges. Uh, Bill Bridges is a, is a real smart guy, and um, he has. Uh, particularly good grasp of mythology and symbolism and uh, so we ended up going through I think we designed this game like three times right so there are really sort of three major the awakenings that got designed practically from start to finish Wow! Um, and sort of by the third iteration uh, Bill really pinned down what would work in sort of having um, having a game about the occult that had some sort of um, mythic resonance but was also accessible, right? Because that was always one of the problems with, with Mage the Ascension, right? It's, it's, mm. it's very easy um, to sit around and talk about it on the internet all day and never play it. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and so we wanted to, wanted to get out of that. And, um, and so, I mean... I can't really speak so much uh, to Bill's influences, um, although I know he has a tremendous education on these things. I know one thing uh, we batted along around a lot was uh, was the Invisibles. Um, oh yeah, yeah. we're all we're all huge fans for that. Well, maybe we're all huge fans. But we're really familiar with it, and I'm a big fan of it. Um, and the fact that uh, you know we wanted to get that. Um, that idea of of searching searching for truth, but not necessarily searching for it through um, how do I put it through conventional ideas about spiritual purity, right? Uh, mm. Which you know, if you're familiar with the Invisibles, it's it's all about that. I think one thing that maybe um, could be emphasized more in Awakening now is that unconventional. Because I think there's a tendency to really think of Awakening as the stuffy wizards game. Right? <laughs> where we all dress up in suits and you know, and we charge our magic circles and we read our books and it's not really about that. Um, it's uh, it's a little more dynamic. Mages are a little more interesting than that. There are people who've had this tremendous initial uh, experience of self-realization. Right? Um, where they know who they are and they know that many things around them are false right? are false, and they're damaged in some sense right? and they're left with you know and they're left with a certain amount of power over the sort of damaged foggy half world that, that they now experience around them right? and what it brings up is you know well what do I owe this piece of shit universe <laughs> essentially yeah. Um, yeah. Right. and you know reconnecting and uh, and rejoining oneself with the supernal I think is very much a part you know part of that is um, is again you know I know I keep coming back to this, this compassion thing right? but I you know that's my own bias and um, and so I think the theme is very much is very much and you'll see this in the invisibles too in the in the last volume where um, I, um, I don't know how familiar people are with the series, right? but it's um, you know it's about a, a bunch of anarchist occultists who may or may not be a part of you know a worldwide conspiracy. You know 
that's you know bound into the higher realms who are fighting the forces of the outer church, you know, who represent uh, control and spiritual pollution and abasing oneself and all kinds of bad stuff. But toward the end of it, what you realize um, is that that bad stuff, you know, is in a sense necessary, right? So you have the protagonist, uh, you have one of the main protagonists, uh, King Moth, who starts out um, being, you know, your, your two-gun badass who you know, um, shoots Delta Force operators in the face to steal uh, mm -hmm. artifacts um, from underground bases in New Mexico, right? And in the end, right, he becomes a, you know, he becomes a suit, right? Um, he becomes part of that corporate culture, and he becomes the, the object of rebellion instead of the rebel. Right? Uh, right. You know, it, after that, it becomes very difficult to describe because you know so much of it is based on Grant Morrison taking great deal of drugs and seeing UFOs. But, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but that reconciliation is a big deal. So that would be one thing. Um, I know a lot of people think of. Oh, I, I know a lot of people get ideas from the Dresden Files for their mage games, mm -hmm. but yeah. I've never read them. Um, there's a Dresden Files game coming out, and I think it'll probably be pretty good. But um, it wasn't something that was being batted back and forth. Uh, we, we were talking about that just before the show, actually, Vince and I. Mm. It's a good read so far. Certainly oh, the. Cool. Books of Magic uh, comic series. Oh, so, you know, yeah, Neil Gaiman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and that's one where you know there is a description of of what Atlantis is like and what it is for. That you know, that's what Atlantis is like in Mage and what it is for. Right. Yeah, I, I, I like that. I like the reference in there to, to Shadow Atlantises and False Atlantises, and uh, that's quite cool. Yeah, um, that you know you have this. You know, you have this symbol of the past that underlines the fact that you know we people can get together and create something glorious, right? Mm. That we can be wise, not just individually, but but collectively, and that's something that um, you know, whether or not it's real, right? The persistence of that idea is important. Um, what else? I mean, to be honest, I don't uh, I don't read a lot of. Um, occult-themed horror. I read a lot of horror, um, but not a lot of occult-themed horror. Well, I mean, it's clear, it's clear that Gnosticism has a, had a strong play in Mage the Awakening. Um, and I, I'm, I was wondering, uh, did the Jail of Night series of articles, I don't know if you're familiar with those from White Wolf's and Phobia magazine back in the day, did, would, would, did the Gnosticism come into the world of darkness through, through that line, or was it just through, its, through a more traditional... Uh, approach from Gnostic philosophy and religion, you know, were those articles mentioned? Were they floated around the table at all? Or? Well, the funny thing is that there's very little um, very little direct conversation about Gnosticism, about you know, having a Gnostic theme, right? It's sort of more yeah. of an emergent quality of, of what was right. necessary to get this game working. Um, mm -hmm. I do remember the Jail of Night articles. I managed to skim one of them because... Um, my uh, my university roommate um, collected collected White Wolf magazine, so I managed to, to skim through one once, and I know they exist. And well, they're host they're hosted on the cult site right now, actually. Are they hosted on the cult site? Oh, that's fantastic! I, yeah, there's uh, a actually, link on our off page. Okay, that's great. Um, yeah, I actually I actually just pulled out um, 
pull up the first edition Fault recently. I had it on my shelf, and I'm going through it again. Mm. And, you know, despite the weirdness and the way it's translated, it's a really evocative game. It's just fantastic. I can't speak yeah. to the tradition. I'm talking about the one where the angel's getting chopped in half. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but, no, that didn't... Uh, the Jail and I articles didn't really come into it, as far as I know. But, you know, every... You know, every freelancer, everyone involved, you know, they, they're always bringing their own experiences and what they've read, right? So right. you may keep asking, you may hit on someone who's done that. And certainly um, you, with someone like, uh, with Bill Bridges at the helm um, for, for the design and development, he was around during that era. And he might yeah. have more than a passing familiarity. Uh, he would cool. be a great guy to interview, by the way, if you can, you can grab yes, him. Yes, um, I would um, I know he's. I know he's pretty busy, um, yeah. but uh, with the not with the Gnostic uh, theme, there are some differences from Gnosticism, right? And that there isn't really, yeah. you know, there's not really the uh, the good guy God up there, right? Um, no. There's there's us and our works. Um, it might be, you know, it does have a sort of, um, you know. Uh, platonic thing up there, right? Because the you know the supernal worlds are very much the, right. the you know the platonic ensemble, um, mm. a pure form through which uh, truth is is derived, right? Um, so that's definitely an influence. But um, I know with my own um, my own personal background, because my uh, because my family is Buddhist, uh, mm. I always looked at that stuff. And it was my, well, there's a very, very different point of view um, in that tradition, right? Where um, you have shunyata, right? You have the idea that, um, you know, because we need to have this um, dialectical relationship with things to understand, right? We have to have, you know, me and not me, um, and book yeah. and not and thing and not that these are arbitrary functional categories that we use, that we mistake for the truth, right? We have this we have this field of ideas that is in some sense false but functional, right? And we also have um, but we also have what's true, but what's true is something that, you know, is not really amenable to words. Um Absolutely, but yeah. it's composed of the same stuff, right? You know, the me and the book and all of this. So, the um, I always look at working on this as you know. I know the Gnostic theme is there, and I want to work on it. But you know, I want to leave room for the kinds of things that resonate with my own experience. So, I've always uh, I've always tried to kind of imply in my writing. That um, you know that there are things about the fallen world that you know that are you know not you know that the fallen world is not entirely shit, right? Um, yes. And that's something where, with for example, you get the the free council, right? Where you have mm. that. All right. It's not so much that the fallen world is degraded; it's that you know it's um, it's a reconfiguration of these supernal enemies. Right? And those new configurations may have new ideas and new truths. And so, 
it's not that the Gnostic theme isn't there. It's just that it's a, it, it is there, and it's there strongly, but it's being approached from a, a non-traditional point of view, and one um, that leaves open any questions about its validity. Oh, cool. Right. Well, I mean, like I, like I said a minute ago, if you want to check out those articles, if you scroll down on our front page, around about episode six, there's a link to uh, to where they're hosted right now. Excellent. Um, okay, now Vince, uh, you want to take Zorlak's questions? He has a, a set of six questions that he uh, puts to pretty much all our listeners. So. Uh, yeah, I'm just going to condense a couple of them. Uh, okay. <laughs> what is your uh, favorite World Darkness book, uh, new or old? Oh, jeez. Um, you have to pick one book. I have to pick one book? Oh, one. fuck, man. Yeah, the house is on fire. You run Everybody out. hates this one. I love yeah. it. The house is on fire. you got to um, grab one wad book out of your collection that's your favorite. Which one? Okay. Uh, oh, okay. Um, <laughs> I, guess I'll, well, I guess I'll grab... Oh, no, that doesn't count. That flying rabbit. Yeah, I was going to grab my copy of Ars Magica second. Mm-hmm. Take off. Um, because that's the seed for you know all this great stuff that's happened since, um, right? And because I feel like you know with Ars Magica, I kind of have this you know creature that I can you know mutate into all of the subsequent games by taking and extending those ideas. Um, but you know that's a cheat because it's just before White Wolf, right? Even though there's a White Wolf edition of Ars, it's too long. I fell asleep reading it. <laughs> nice. <laughs> who, who wants a hundred pages on lab? You know, that's I mean, I know there are some real grief that I get, but I mean, come on. Uh, I guess. You know. <laughs> the house is burning. Yeah. The house is, <laughs> the house is burning. Um, and I. You're in the corner. The cat's meowing. Well, <laughs> <laughs> um, ah, oh, you know what? Um, I'll grab Mummy because I always wanted another kick at kick at that. Cool. <laughs> All right. <laughs> right. You know, it's not necessarily my favorite, but you know, it's the one. It's the one that I'll do novel things with. Okay. Excellent. All right, now uh, say the house is not on fire, and you have your whole collection there in front of you, including World of Darkness and everything else. What is mm-hmm. your favorite uh, system that is not World of Darkness? My favorite system that is not World of Darkness. Mm-hmm. That you would play um, other than World of Darkness, yeah. Well, right now I'm running, um, I'm running a uh, game set in uh, in about five thousand C. It's this uh, transhuman game set on a Dyson Sphere, and I'm using a tweaked version of the Adventure rule system, and I'm quite, I'm quite fond of that right now. Um, although I've been hacking the system as time goes on, um, there's so many, um, but that's you know that's a little too close. Right now, I'm playing, uh, I'm playing Fourth Edition D and D, and I'm enjoying that. Mm. Uh, I think. You know, I can't really, I can't really tell you I have a favorite because uh, you know different games do different things. Um, <laughs> yeah. I don't really have, I don't really have a game that I fall back to anymore. Right? I mean, I used to, right? I mean, and it used to be Mage, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but 
but you know i've I've tried to really stretch myself because I feel you know as someone who who works in game design, I want to experience as many different cool games as possible so um so I've kind of trained myself out of having having the go to system now so i'm I'm sorry I can't answer that. I'm really coughing out sorry. <laughs> <laughs> he also asked um if you read comic books, and what is your favorite comic book to read when you're just lazing back and relaxing? I'm just lazing back and relaxing. Yeah. That's a good question. Um, I got together with a, my game group yesterday, and uh, we watched X-Men Origins Wolverine. And that was terrible. But it was good to have my friends there to yell at the television. Um, <laughs> and uh, certainly I like the Morrison run of, uh, of X-Men. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the great one where they prove charm and, you know, all all those ideas that they proceed to retcon right away. Um, you know, where Cyclops is finally interesting because he's having, you know, uh, psychic better sex with the White Queen dressed up as the Phoenix, you know. <laughs> I think that's great. That's the bee's knees. The bee's uh, oh. <laughs> nice. But I'm not much into the X-Men in general. Uh, I just like that run. I suppose for um, comics, the last one I really got into was the authority. But again, you know, with me in comics, it's usually, um, I'm usually waiting, you know, I usually get something about uh, three or four years after it's done. Yeah. Oh, I see. You get the graphic novels usually? Yeah, I get them, or my wife, um, my wife picks up something, because she's, um, is quite a fan of those sorts of things. Okay. Interesting. And uh, why do you love role-playing games so much, he wants to know? Oh, okay. I was actually looking forward to answering this one. Um, okay. I think there's, you know, as gamers, you know, as, as people who role-play, we're part of this hobby that is, you know, either assumed to be a video game or not well understood. And, of course, in the 80s and 90s and took a lot of shit, right? Because, you know, it's that nerdy hobby. Um, I think, however, there's a tendency now to to lose what I feel is the great thing the role-playing form does um, because we have that lingering change, so we go, well, why can't this game be more like literature or like a play? Um, and you see a lot of new design movements and all things going to that, right? And so you get these games that are like literature or like a play, except they're like um, bad books and bad plays because they're following structure that, you know, they learned in, you know, if they learned in high school or first year university English, right? Uh, where, you know, you have your plot arc and your writing contention, you have, uh, you know, things that strictly must be resolved. You have all that bullshit, and I don't think role playing is about that. I don't think role playing is about emulating another medium. I think role playing is about being its own medium. When you try to make an RPG be like a movie or be like a book or um, be like anything else, what you're basically saying is role playing sucks, and you should read a book or watch a movie or do any of those things. Fuck that. Okay. Instead, I think what is vital. Um, to game well, to understand tabletop RPGs, is to 
understand what the medium for is for. And it's not for neatly tying up the loose ends in your plot. It's not for a conventional plot structure with rising tension. You can use those as tools, right? But you have this other factor. You have your group. You have them making their own decisions. You have this tension um, between your desires and theirs, right? And you have this great creative process where that tension resolves itself. And I think ultimately, the purpose of it, the thing I love about it, is the fact that it creates um, experiences that, while entirely fictional, feel sincere, right? Because they have the same confused, disorganized, um, multifaceted um, elements as you know as a genuine experience, right? Because narrative, um, the idea of story is, you know, story is bullshit, okay, yeah, they're called storytelling games, but, you know, the story as a concept, um, it's garbage, right, it's false, it's fake, um, your experiences are real, later you turn them into stories so that you can share them, so you can make sense of them, so you can learn something from them, but the truth of the matter is that direct experience is confused, you look at it through several angles, um, things don't quite add up, uh, it doesn't have a theme. You add a theme post hoc. And that, I think, is the great thing about RPGs, is the fact that we get this kind of drinking from the fire hose of simulated experience, and after that it's up to us to create a narrative, just like actual experience. That's why I love RPGs. Wow, fantastic. <laughs> cool. Okay. We'll move on to our next set of questions. Uh, Mark, want to hand the laminated whisper? Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is uh, from Lamented Whisper. He's got a couple of questions here. Um, he wants to know what was your favorite part about uh, working on Hunter the Vigil? Oh, geez. Well, I only worked on a couple of books. I worked on Night's, uh, Night Stalkers and the Horror Recognition Guide. Um, I think my favorite thing was working on the Horror Recognition Guide uh, on a couple of levels. Uh, first of all, people seem to really like it. Thank you. Uh, hmm. Secondly, I got to write in a long form I haven't gotten to do for White Wolf in quite some time. Right now, when I was working on uh, Maze, you know, you not only you know you not only write the Splat book or whatever, uh, you write a novella to explain it. Right. Now, the trouble is in something like Mage, you know, the game fiction has, is very functional in that, you know, you have to do this, you know, thing where, you know, the apprentice goes up and goes, why do we believe this? And the master goes, <laughs> well, Billy, um, you know, we think we should be killing people because they've outlived their karmic usefulness. Blah, 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 right? And one of the great challenges in Mage was actually to break that format. Um, now, uh, but in the Horror Recognition Guide, I got to, you know, I got to write something that where the... Chuck was great about um, setting its purpose as something we could, uh, we could easily write legitimate fiction around, right? Because it was, you know, you, you take a look at... Um, a type of antagonist, right? Yeah, that's something hunters would face, and that's it. And you make sure you do it through, you know, from their point of view, 
and that you muddle things up enough so that um, people can do can think something other than oh well there's a cabal of seers of the throne right that they can do something other than that uh, and so within you know within those very loose restrictions I was able to write what I thought was, was some pretty pretty nice fiction and people responded to it right? cool also um, uh, David David Hill um, wrote a great um, a great uh, uh, SAS um, adventure based um, based on stuff that I wrote uh, the Razor Kids thing in um, in the Horror Recognition Guide and it was great to uh, to work on that and then have something even better come um come from that because I think he did a he just did a bang up job so having something be more than the sum of its parts like that is, is very rewarding that's nice um, Lamented Whisper also wants to know uh, would you be interested in doing a hunter book uh, for changelings if there ever comes to be one um sure why not I like getting paid <laughs> cool <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's an interesting topic, but you know, one of the things you'll discover about freelancers is they don't, you know, there are very few things that will turn down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. It's just the way things are. But yeah, I think it. I think it would be interesting to do. Seriously. I did have a curious question that came to mind, and if you can't answer it, that's fine. Um, when you're developing a book for White Wolf, they come to you with an idea, and they want you to develop a book. Would you be able to? Do you pick the writers that are involved with it, or they just say, "Here's what they're doing, and we want these people to work on it and work with them"? Uh, well, you know, you'd have to ask somebody who's developed for that. Um, I've never done any developing. Oh, no. Uh, I've, you know, I think as a writer, I've occasionally taken, I've occasionally added a pretty strong direction um, to some books and some things and some lines, simply because I've had the chance to, you know apply my experience because you have developers who are very cool about um, about letting some fairly intense collaboration happen right and also in the case of, of some games um, like mage it's just because I was around a whole lot to work on them yeah I would love to develop a book and if you think I should develop a book feel free to contact white wolf slash CCP North America <laughs> tell them that <laughs> <laughs> I think it would be a blast. I think for the developers, um, I'm not sure how much say they have in, in picking writers. I think I think all of them do have some say in it. Um, I, it might depend on whether... I think if you're... I think if you're in-house, you have, you have a little more control over that. Right. So, but that's something you you really want to afford to somebody who's uh, who's done it, like uh, like Chuck or or Ethan or you know um, we had, or Matt. We had Matt. Matt was talking about developing. As I think he was our first interviewee. Uh, he had some interesting stuff to stay on that. Um, now, um, you mentioned Venice Chronicles earlier on. Mm. Uh, one of our listeners, J.M. Mariano, had a couple of questions about those. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was asking how your experience working in the Venice Chronicles social network influenced your work in role-playing games. Okay, that's a good question. Now, for those of you who don't know, the Venice Chronicles was um, uh, an experimental social network that I worked on a couple of years ago. 
And the idea was to build a social network using the principles of um, of kind of forum and chat paste RPGs, right? And that the idea was that would um, that would break the ice and allow for sort of rich content participation in this social network. Um, now, it ended up not. Um, it ended up kind of mutating over time because you know it's it's not just a game; it's, it was a business, right? And ultimately, it was sort of a test of concept for this um, this rich research social networking system. But the idea was that it was set in uh, fictional Venice um, with a number of great houses, right? And each of the houses had um, access to. Uh, esoteric abilities based on um, based on virtues and sins, right? And these were handled narratively. And the idea is that you'd be, you know, you'd be creating a lot of user-generated content to gain um, the sort of in-system currency because it was a micropayment-based um, social network. And uh, you'd do that by submitting videos, um, by uh, following along in the uh, the ARG, the alternate reality game that we worked on to accompany it, and so on and so forth. I think its experience, um, in terms of uh, which is what I work on now, is it's made me really appreciate the kind of feedback that you can get um, from live play communities and different media. Uh, I've um, for example, what's happening in uh, in the LARP community, in uh, in chat games, and so on and so forth, and especially with chat games and with forum games, because there's been such a huge explosion in that, particularly related mm. to fandom. Right? There's this whole section of role playing that it seems that you know us old table toppers uh, don't seem to be really interested in going out and engaging. Right? Um, and you know they have their own, they have their own sort of functional rules and customs and ways of doing things, and uh, I think for for, uh, for bringing it back to tabletop play, um, I've always thought of of looking at those as sort of uh, uh, simulated societies and simulated cultures. So if I see something that you know in the Camarilla is. Uh, you know, is a big idea that gets a lot of traction. Certainly, I'll see that as as something inspiring for my writing. And similarly, when I when I've written things uh, for lines, I've also thought of how that's going to work in different gaming media. Right? How it's going to work in a chat, or how it's going to work in a lark. For example, in the Silver Ladder book, you know, you have the um, you have your convocations. Right? Do you remember those? Mm. Um, Right, where a bunch of pages from different cities meet, and there are a whole bunch of traditions that you follow. And one of the things that was very much in my mind is, if I write this stuff, right, the cam is going to actually run these at some point. Right? So whatever yeah. I work on right, is going to, you know, like it's going to form the basis for some kind of you know, Camarilla Roberts rules for for how how people pretend to get together in very large groups of mages. So. It was interesting to think of that, right? So, for example, you know, I had different days, right, where you del deliberate different things, right? And that's why I said they don't have to be actual days, right? Because, you know, 
nobody's going to sit around a larger country for a week just because the book says they did. Um, yeah. And it's better <laughs> not to, uh, and it's better not to try and get the, the poor narratives of storytellers on the ground to, to start tweaking things. Right? Just because I didn't think, uh, think of that side of it. Cool. Okay. Uh, did you, did you share any of your experiences and lessons, uh, learned while working on the Venice Chronicles with, say, the team currently working on the World of Darkness Online uh, MMO game? Or do you not really have much contact with those guys? No, I don't have much contact with them. Um, I am working. Um, I'm working on uh, an MMO right now for a client, um, but it's it doesn't have to do with, uh, with White Wolf CCP. Uh, it is right. a freelance job, however, and, um, and certainly if you'd like to see me work on the World of Darkness MMO, <laughs> Just send your mail too. <laughs> uh, well, have, you, have you got have you got specific ideas concerning you know what would make a World of Darkness MMO successful? Or uh... um, I think uh, I think one of the things that's important is first of all to have um, you know a good robust mythology that uh, that shares like a strong shared world. Strong shared world, right? And uh, the kind of thing that I know in Requiem uh, development has certainly been emphasized more recently. Um, with uh, mm. oh, what is that thing that just came out? The is it the Testament of Longinus? I'm not sure. Yeah, um, but you know, one of the great things about masquerade is, 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 is it's that kind of book of nod style thing. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think yeah, 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 yeah. Means, yes, yes. You know, in masquerade, you had the book of nod, you had the Kenneth, and those things. You know, they were very restrictive on some points in that they set up a whole bunch of events, which you know led to monsters waking up and uh, and vampires appearing on TV. And right. but I mean, if you go back to that core idea, right, having that. Um, Having that cool mythology and having that basis of unity in the mythology, right, um, is something that that really helps communities form. Right, uh, right. even if they dislike it, they get together to talk about it. So I think you have to have that in the content. I think also you have to have the tools in the game uh, to support people talking. You need a, I think, you need a fairly robust social networking application that is. Um, that's native to the game so that it captures the community and gets them all in one place instead of having them scattered throughout secondary social communities um, like you know like Facebook or, or some kind of third party forum where yeah. you know right because you know um, you have that whole situation with uh, you know that whole situation with Eve and something awful right and the something awful forums Right mm -hmm. where um, where a whole bunch of youth players come from there, and there's sort of this All big right. power block, right? Um, okay. And uh, I think uh, I think it's important, especially now, to to capture um, to capture players uh, in a social network, and also to get them contributing on user generated content and enriching the world themselves, right? And having multiple ways to to share and talk about that, and not not just within the game, right? Because you know you can't, you won't be able to log on to the World of Darkness MMO and, and 
play all, all the time um, unless you need some help getting your life in. Uh, <laughs> and, <laughs> and so, and so you want to provide these communities that have multiple types and, and levels of participation, right? So if you want to just right. talk about, so if you want to share your fanfic, you know, capturing capturing fan fiction, capturing fan art, doing all of those things, right? Having some kind of integrated support uh, for what are under the, in other games would be called guilds. I don't know what they would call them in the World of Darkness MMO, right? I think yeah. making it that 360-degree experience mm. uh, would be cool. a great thing. Uh, uh, and the last question from Jim Mariano. Uh, what, what's your favorite RPG material that was eventually cut in the final editing process? Oh, stuff, that you, stuff that you wrote and then hit the cutting room floor. Stuff that I wrote and then hit the cutting room floor. Um... You know, there have been lots of little bits here and there, but I can't think of anything huge. Um, like I said, a whole bunch of stuff got cut from Judgment, but uh, actually, you know, I'll use that. I was able to, I was able to reorganize and reuse most of it. But one thing I couldn't use was um, was this bit where the characters go to the um, go to the spy's demise. And oh. uh, and they meet and they meet the computer. Yes. Right. Um, uh, that you you released that online sometime back. I didn't did you? release that online somewhere. I think. Um, yeah. Or I about it or something. Right? Yeah, I'm but sure one, I got a copy of that somewhere. One of the things I wanted to sort of do in judgment is um, I wanted to you know, because one of the things that's happening is you have the you have control right you have this body running the technocracy, which is basically the social conditioning feedback loop, right? Where it's not that, you know, control is going and controlling agents' minds. It's that agents' fears are being relayed to this concept of control, which in turn is being reflected back on them in the form of psychological conditioning, right? Yeah. Uh, so, however, that wasn't true for... Um, for a couple of factions, it wasn't true for the Void Engineers who eventually just leave. Right? You know, they, they they spin up the cop and they get the they get the fuck out of that universe. Um, yeah. And it wasn't true for uh, Iteration X either, because you know all of the all that bit all those bits where you know the computer was you know uh, making people loyal to the machine and you know doing all that crap. Um, was actually something that was serving to, you know, prevent them from turning turning into, you know, um, crazy reality movie hunting conformists. Right? I mean, they have their own, they have their own sort of weird post-human, um, frightening post-human values, right? But in a way, they were kind of free from that. Yeah. Cool. And, there was, and there was a whole bunch of things where I wanted to go into the fact that. Um, that its role as um, that X is that, that the computer's role as being this emergent intelligence was not necessarily um, contradictory with the exalted version of the backstory and so on and so forth. So right, right, right. Yeah. Okay. Okay, uh, Vince, I'm going to let you dip into the Beckett bucket. <laughs> the Beckett bucket, yes. <laughs> well, in the interest of time, because we are pushing on two hours here, I'm going to grab the the most. Uh, relevant questions here. Okay, uh, Malcolm, you're sitting down to write 
a book that White Wolf has given you. He gives an example of UFO, the abducting. Hmm. And uh, what's, what? how do you get in the mood to write? Do you listen to music? Do you go watch your favorite movie over and over again? Do you cut your toenails? What do you do? I do cut my toenails because my to- toenails are really thick and kind of gross. <laughs> Um, and also, you know, and also I don't like, like I do, um, one of my hobbies is, uh, is jujitsu and submission grappling. And if you cut somebody with your feet, then they don't like to roll with you anymore. And that sucks. Mm. Um, which actually is relevant because one of the things I usually do is I make sure that, um, that I ramp up my physical fitness (laughs) because I don't like to feel restless while I work. Mm. Um, I do that. I might uh, do some writing. Um, I often like to write short fiction pieces, um, and uh, usually, you know, just five hundred words or so um, to get an idea of what uh, what the sort of narrative lines that are going to come out of the work are. Um, I might even do a couple of sketches. I'm not a terrific artist um, by any means, right? But you know, it's it's kind of cross connecting. Uh, those centers of inspiration. I don't know, maybe it's a left brain, right brain thing. Um, somebody who's more scientifically minded than you can figure out, figure it out. <laughs> and then I think one of the most important parts of the process is is waiting for my kids to go to sleep. Because it's a small <laughs> house and right. they're noisy. <laughs> that that <laughs> would play an important factor, yeah. I can empathize with that. <laughs> All right. Thanks for that. All right, and I'm dipping into the bucket, Beckett. Uh, oh, the Beckett bucket. Beckett bucket. <laughs> Whoa. Uh, he wants to know um, the paychecks you get from White Wolf. Does it have cool designs on it, or is it just a plain wonderful paycheck from White Wolf? Um, it's a normal check. Okay. Mark, you want to grab one of Warlock's questions? Yeah, well, Warlock uh, wants to know um, what, what's your favorite part about uh, either Mage of the Awakening uh, and Mage of the Ascension? Which of those, what are, what are the two things about those game lines that, uh, that really stand out for you as being enjoyable? Uh, I think for Ascension, I, I went into it in a lot of detail before. Um, mm. And I think it's the idea of the relationship between, um, between, how, between morality and how we structure ideas is the thing that I think is, is big in Mage the Ascension. Um, in Awakening, I think a lot of it is, is how we can conceive of ourselves and our accomplishments. Um, how, we can, how we conceive of success, uh, because, you know, in Awakening, you have, you know, you have this kind of uh, super conservative bent where, you know, the world is terrible. Atlantis was better, right? Um, except that, you know, everybody's ideas about what Atlantis was or whether it was called Atlantis are different, right? Um, so you have this construction of a narrative that explains, uh, you know, who you are and where you've come from and where you're going. Um, and and the relationship we have with those narratives, I think, is, is, pretty, is pretty important. Um... Also for Awakening, I do like the ways in which the magic system has been has been tightened up quite a bit. Although I do think it's tad tad complicated. I usually cut out a whole bunch of rules when I run it. Mm. Cool. Okay, um, we've got a couple of questions also from uh, the wonderfully named Pronomancer. 
<laughs> he wondered if if you'd had any ideas for Dark Ages Fey that you were unable to implement due to its short run that you were then able to pick up and use again in Changeling the Lost. Um, no, <laughs> unfortunately, not really. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, Sorry. You, no, well, uh, yeah, there you go, short and sweet. Um, he also asks, and he says, he says there's a very vocal opposition to Mage of the Awakening's overarching origin of Atlantis. Uh, yes, it's the Atlantis flame war rearing its head again. Um, he says, particularly for Mage of the Ascension players, um, he says, having worked on both old and new Mage, how do you feel about this controversy? Uh, other than the obvious wish it would go away. Um, this reminds me, I remember... Um I remember this guy who was complaining about Mage on on Ian World, and he was talking about, well, you know, he's an you know, he's an actual occultist, and you know, he's uh, <laughs> he follows, you know, and you know, he, he's one of these little pissant uh, Alistair Crowley guys, right? And uh, <laughs> you know, uh, and what I ended up, uh, you know, what I ended up doing is, you know, one of the, you know one of the major works on Atlantis in the context of occult traditions is by Alistair Crowley. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he wrote a big monograph about, you know, his past life in Atlantis. Um, really, the whole... I think the whole deal with it is um, is emblematic of some of the ways in which Awakening succeeded um, where Ascension started to fail. And that's in terms of accessibility. Um, I think accessibility and and real play, because I'm sorry to say, I uh, one of the terrible things about, the, about Ascension fandom toward the end there was that these were a bunch of people who weren't playing the fucking game um, mm. in a lot of cases. I, I mean... There'd be, you know, we'd be talking about, you know, which, you know, three-letter acronym for the behavior of paradox. Oh God, don't remind me. Yeah. <laughs> and all this stuff, all this stuff about ultimate metaphysics, very little about playing the game. I mean, one thing about ascension that you know, hardly anybody ever mentioned is that you know, the base mechanic for the magic system doesn't make any sense, right? Uh, this is because of the way. This is because of the number of successes you're likely to get on a low rank versus a high rank effect. For example, um, if I, you know, use my psychokinetic, uh, you know, attack a dragon punch, um, it will usually do more damage um, than me using forces five to make a black hole. Yeah. Right. It all comes to the same table, right? So you know that that didn't make sense, right? And you know. If people were playing the game, you would expect them to comment on it. Uh, but a lot of times they weren't, so they didn't. Uh, it's the same thing for, for the orders, for all of this stuff. It's, um, however, to be fair, I think it does speak to Awakenings. Uh, you know, Awakening does have weaknesses, and one of that is that it is very, very tightly focused on this is a game that you will pick up and play. Um, you know, and this is a game full of ideas that can later be extended um, and elaborated on and, you know, full of open-ended inspirations. And that, perhaps, is less evocative than, you know, um, plopping you into, you know, um, the middle of a grand conflict with, with 
defined with you know strongly defined factions and spaceships and and all of this stuff right instead in awakening right you are given you know you're given a structure to work with uh, you're given a basic mythology you're given a motive to pursue elaborate spin and question that mythology right built into the rules because that's how you gain arcane experience um, however that a lot of the time that's something that ha- wasn't uh, you know wasn't communicated with the same with the same sense of fun and urgency um, even if it le- has led to um, maybe a more robust play oriented community uh, and you know and kind of more uh, more more decent games out there. So, you know, I think it's one of those things where, you know, it would be great to have another kick at the can um, at the Awakening Core book mm-hmm. um, to really throw that zest in, right? I mean, it's right. one of those things, uh, when we got into this, right, it was with the idea that, you know, it's not going to be like, you know, um, like uh, the old world of darkness where, you know, here's your first edition. And then here's the hardcover that is the, you know, the non-half-baked version of the game, right? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> the idea is that we wanted something that was a functional a functional game right out, right out of the gate, right? And, um, and it succeeded, but, you know, it, there is a lesson there in that, you know, you can always do better, right? You right, can always right. Need another, another chance or a chance to... Cool. Well, he he also wanted to know, you know, what does do you think Mage of the Awakening does better than Mage of the Ascension? You've kind of answered that pretty well just now. So he had a couple of questions on Geist. Um, to uh, to step away from Mage for a moment, um, he said he says the the power of traditional ghost stories comes from the idea of an unseen antagonist. Yet in Geist, Sydney to can see the ghosts. So what kind of ghost stories could you expect players and storytellers to create, given that Sinita's pretty much spoil every traditional ghost story? Uh, you know, and is Geist beyond the traditional ghost story? That's not the, that's not the power of traditional ghost stories. Shut up. <laughs> no, the power of traditional ghost stories is that ghosts are dead and you're afraid of dying. <laughs> you're afraid of dying and, um, you know, the presence of a ghost... Um, paradoxically brings home the reality of death because a ghost is different from you and it uh, gives you evidence that passing into death is passing into a form of difference right? where you are no longer you right? Um, and that is it's different from the being you have now so it makes death real um, even if you have a ghost wandering around with a semblance of being right? that's that to me is the power of ghost stories. I mean, okay. this is one thing where I think um, the values of RPGs are sometimes different from the values of fiction. In that, in RPGs, dying is really not that big a deal, right? I mean, you make a new character, right? But you know, in real life, dying is a pretty big fucking deal. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's the thing all of us want to avoid for as long as possible, um, yeah. unless we're very depressed. So, uh, I I reject this premise. Uh, however, I will say that um, certainly, uh, Geist. Uh, you can use Geist to tell the kinds of stories where um, 
you know, where you resolve something for the ghost, right? And resolving something for the ghost um, is, is one of those classic ones. And you see it in all kinds of things. And I've always thought that resolving something for the ghost is really something like, you know, resolving, you know, coming, coming to peace with the reality of death yourself, right? Um, because you're acknowledging the ghost. You're acknowledging, you're acknowledging that when you die, um, there, will thing, there are things that you will want to have done in your life that, that you won't be able to do, you know? Your life, everyone's life, will ultimately end and at least some kind of defeat, right? Because we will not... Some of us who have wanted to see the Great Wall of China up close, we won't have done it. Um, some of us will always have wanted wanted to tell our, our sons, our daughters, our lovers, our parents these things, will will have failed to do, have done it, right? Uh, unfinished business. Yeah. yeah, we'll have that. We will have that unfinished business, right? And by settling that unfinished business, um, or by opposing that unfinished business in the case of a destructive ghost, um, you know, you acknowledge that you, you, the person, the player, are going to have that unfinished business. Cool. Well, that kind of addresses his next question. He was he was saying Geist has been out for nearly a month at the time of his writing. So for those who are still on the fence, sell them on what you think is cool about it. So, uh, I think, yeah, I, I guess so. I think it's also the life-affirming um, uh, point of view of the protagonist, right? And the fact that we mm. did try to move a, a little, you know, a bit away from you know the Victorian parlor spiritualist thing to something a little more, um, a little more colorful. Right, right. Now, which parts of the guys did you work on, and, and what was your inspiration for those parts? You know, movies, books, paintings, comics, history, religion. Um. I worked on the uh, crew uh, creation section, um, mm-hmm. which for which the, the mechanics are a little shaky, unfortunately, because they uh, the version that went in was sort of for the mid-developed version of the game. Um, I will, incidentally, um, try to do sort of an unofficial um, erratum for those on my blog. At some All right, point. wow. Uh, so just so you know, I've got a lot of I'm juggling a lot of things, but that is that is on my mind there, folks. Um, okay, I didn't know that. And uh, I worked on antagonists, and one of I guess the whole idea that you can um, the whole idea of building building your own crazy death felt, um, mm. you know, that's pretty cool. And fortunately, there were you know, because uh, because faction because I guess splat design is something that you know. Um, you know, down down at Way Wolfway, they 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 know it pretty well. Um, they've got uh, <laughs> they've got well, they've got plenty of resources. I mean, Hunter, you know, I I, I nick the tears from Hunter. Um, yeah. Nick a lot of concepts from other games. Uh, as in terms of uh, movies, books, paintings, comics, history, religions. Oh, I don't know lots of stuff. It's one of those things where. It really was about um, more, more about a getting a desired game effect than an atmosphere. Um, although it does contribute to the atmosphere in as much that I wanted Geist to have a setting where everybody can be right about the occult, 
where you don't have the idea uh, we don't have knowledge being this privileged thing like you do in mage right like, mm. because sin eaters they just make shit up and it still works right um yeah. oh, they're the people who you know can they can mash together the you know the sensationalist 60s paperback about voodoo and you know some chunk of shirley mclean um and you know a fundamentalist preacher uh, whatever, whatever he's saying at, at two o'clock in the morning, um, on his spot TV time, and they could turn that into a, into a functional um, cultic belief system that has real power. Cool. Okay, uh, Mark, we're going to move on to uh, Boggan Knight's questions. Go for it. Mister uh, Boggan Knight wants to know uh, regarding your company, uh, Mob United Media. Given the market shares are. Uh, for smaller for smaller companies, how would you decide what projects need to be published? Uh, whether I like them, I mean, basically, Mob United Media is sort of what I you know it's a locus for my my freelance interests. Right. Um, so it's uh, I use it for for a number of projects I do. Unfortunately, a lot of them are are, are under NDA, like the MMO I'm talking about. Uh, I was talking about earlier, um, but usually. Uh, if somebody comes to me with a really good idea, um, like you know, like Stu Wilson did, and Steve Wilson, American Hero, and, yeah. and, uh, <laughs> I, I can build on it, uh, and I feel I have a useful role to play, then then that's when I'll go for it. Or if I have an idea and I want to, you know, turn it into a game real fast, then, you know, I have this, I have this business, but. Uh, but the actual game publishing side of it is not really, you know, it's something that, you know, I make better than no money uh, from it as, you know, strictly from the tabletop publishing side. Um, but at the same time, it's uh, it's mostly for me. You know, it's mostly for cool. my pleasure and to get things out there that I think would be cool. Mm-hmm. Fun. Okay, he also wants to uh, just mention Dragons of the East. He uh, just wants to say it's one of his uh, most used source books in his mage games, next to the Book of Madness and the New World Order, and he wants to thank you for all the years of fun, and he appreciates it. Oh, thank you. Um, I kind of cringe when I open it now, but I'm <laughs> glad people still like it. My first book, oh, man, I was, um, I was in university at the time. I had no sleep. Um, it was pretty... Uh, it was pretty crazy um, and I can actually segue from this into a, a question I've got the questions up in front of me from Welding Darkness mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, how did I get started as a freelancer for White Wolf um, well that was when I was in university um, I actually contacted uh, Jess Hanig on uh, Usenet right um, and I wrote this big long post about you know making the Akash Brotherhood cool and he liked it so much, he asked me if I'd like to take uh, a crack at some freelancing work that was sort of uh, in that area, right? And I didn't hear about him. Uh, I didn't hear from him again for about two years, but I contacted him occasionally and asked if he was still up for it. And he said yes, and he said yes, and eventually he sent me a contract, and that's how I got cool. started right? over over Usenet. Um, <laughs> it's. Uh, for advice into to, into freelancing, I would say that the thing to do is not to do what I did, 
um, because really that was kind of a fluke and driven by the fact that uh, that Jess uh, Jess is a really Jess is, Jess is a very is a very nice and very smart guy, and he also happened to know about some of the stuff I was talking about in that original post, um, so we mm. kind of recognized what was going on there. I would say for most people, the thing to do would probably be to uh, participate intelligently in communities, come out with uh, kick-ass fan material, and um, and uh, follow their submission guidelines. Right? Go to their site, yes. submit stuff, get you know, uh, get it into Slush, um, because they'll know you've tried that way. And also, in terms of uh, you know, trying to improve yourself, trying to improve your craft, um, and for, for RPGs for gaming, play games. Um, play games around them, play a variety. Um, and think in terms of a creator and not just a consumer, not just a what is this game going to do for me, but how can I fool with this to make it better. And I think. I think most role players already have the instinct to do that, but um, often uh, there's a tendency to slide back and, and and think of oneself as just a client of the product. And I think it's important to reiterate. Yes. Cool. Okay, well, our last set of questions um, come from a, a guy calling himself Darker Days Mark, who's uh, clearly a major fan with too much time on his hands. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, he says, that in addition to your work on Dragons of the East, you are also the sole author on the uh, revised tradition books for the Akashi Brotherhood and the Euthanatos. Um, now, these are often held as some of the strongest tradition books for Mage Revised. The treatment of respective cultures and beliefs in martial arts systems feels particularly authentic, for example. Uh, what do you feel that you were able to bring to those tradition books that has made them such a success? Um, well, I guess for, for Akasha Kid, you know, it helps that, you know, I'm a bit of a martial arts nerd. Um, I worked on the fighting styles in Armory 2 for that reason as well. Mm. Uh, and uh, it also helps that you know um, I grew up in a in a half Buddhist family, so um, so a lot of those ideas and concepts were pretty familiar to me. And I wanted to see them. Well, you can't. Oh, here's the thing: with uh, you can't really do them authentically because there are you know there are real cultures out there, right? With real beliefs, you have to respect those, and you have to have a respectful distance away from the reality of that, and not try to represent it directly. But what you can do is you can take those inspirations and you can spin them in a fictive direction in a way that you feel is respectful. Um, so for you know for the Akashic Brotherhood, right? A lot of um, I kind of took as my root um, uh, Tibetan and, and Chinese Buddhism because those are the forms of Buddhism that have a lot of, of, of syncretic features. Right, um, where they take things from from other religions and they try to find um, a structure um, within esoteric Buddhism, um, or uh, or you have a lot of sort of Taoism uh, and, and Buddhism mashups in uh, in traditional in traditional Chinese religion. Um, but instead of saying you know the Akashics are these guys. I said, well, you know, what if there, you know, what if there were 
what if there was a, you know, uh, 4,000-year-old um, secret society weaving through these, right? Um, but acting with the characteristics of these secret societies, right? How would they structure themselves? What kind of stuff would they do, right? What kind of belief systems would evolve from that, right? Um, so taking that fictional line um, that threads through those cultures is was sort of my way of, of dealing with that. Um, and it was the same kind of thing with... Uh, with the Ethanatos. Um you have uh, you know you have a whole bunch of, of belief systems that people adhere to quite seriously, right? And, and you know, and really uh, Kali is not, you know is not really supposed to be scary like that, right? Yeah. That was one thing where, you know, unfortunately the um, the pop culture elements of it are very engaging. Mm -hmm. They're also based on um, Orientalist, colonialist attitudes, but they are mm -hmm. really engaging. So I was stuck with this kind of paradox, and I tried to do my best. Um, it's not something I would do the same way again, and right. it's. Uh, but it seemed to have worked, and I know. Um, I know I was talking to a few. Um, Nepalese Shaivists who were fans of me who were asking me about this, right? You were saying, well, these parts are authentic and these parts aren't. And I said, well, I can't, you know, I can't represent your religion, right? I have to. Right. It's this weird thing where to respect you, I have to make it fake. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so there you go. Interesting. Yeah, at the end of the day, it's for a game, so, you know. Yeah. Um, now, Manifesto, tra Transmissions from the Rogue Council, that brought the Ascension War back to center stage from revised edition of Mage the Ascension. How much input did you have in the direction of that project? You know, were you following a strongly codified set of guidelines from the developer, or were the specifics of the book's contents left in the hands of you, and uh, I think Angel McCoy was the other writer? In other words, how much was the return to the Ascension War developer-led as opposed to designer-led? Well, um, that was something that... Um was actually part of sort of the the big mage uh, story arc um, from from before the change in developers. Uh, right. The idea was the idea was always that you know there would there would be a bit of a cleanup of of a kind of cluttered, unfocused mage continuity. Right. I mean, for example, um, mage is supposed to be about you know this four sided conflict between the traditions, the technocracy, and the Nefandi and the Marauders, but in reality, if you look at all of these uh, of the first, second edition metaplot, it's you know it's it's all about internal stuff in the council, right? Um, it's all about people hiding what Vormus is doing and Caron uh, yeah. uh, Mustai being being a dick to Porthos and Porthos <laughs> being crazy and and all this stuff, right? Which you know it, there was this big chunk of stuff that was. That was far afield from what was supposed to be what the game was about, right? So the idea was to you know clean things up a bit. Although you know the implementation due to a confluence of events um, was a little clumsy, and then you know um, get things going again, right? Get that conflict going again. Um, one of the things uh, 
that uh, Jess Haney always kind of shakes his head about is when people kind of hold up revised as the you know as the addition that you know finally makes the technocracy in the good into the good guys because yeah. he like me um, think the technocracy are fucking fascists right yeah uh, so uh, so bringing it back was always the plan um, but you know sometimes plans get kind of derailed right because you know things like feedback from sales and so on and so forth. So this was um, Bill's way of starting things right now, right? Um, so the structure of having the secret messages and everything, that was sort of set. Um, the exact format, that was Angel McCoy. Um, I was really responsible for having a, um, you know, having the backup um having the backup characters and, and doing that adventure, right? And in that case, that was, those were things that I just took straight from my chronicle, right? The, um, Jupiter's Forge is the, was the, uh, was the cabal for my chronicle. Cool. Yeah, so, I mean, a a it goes nicely on to the next question, Alien Avatar, the adventure, and, of course, Judgment, which you mentioned earlier on, are famous for having their origins in your home chronicle. Uh, and as, as you pointed out earlier in the, uh, in the podcast, Judgment in particular is notable because of the way it ties so many plot threads together from the entire run of Mage the Ascension. Now, you talked about going through the various books of the line all the way back to Fragile Path and stuff. Did your home version f of these adventures feature such strong tie-ins to the previous Mage material? Or was that something that you specifically added for the published version? Well, there were some, but not as many, definitely. Um, but... No, there were still some links. For example, but you know, they were modified by the fact that you know my game was different. For example, in my game, yeah. um, the the Avatar Storm came about um, because of you know a big you know a whole big thing where the uh, where the PCs in my game were trying to keep the Shimisei antediluvian from from rising right in New York right back in. Um, back in 2000 and uh, that was the I think that was the technocracy leg of my game um, sorry it gets it gets a little muddled because I ran this I ran this chronicle with three cabals um, uh, in the same sort of meta setting for oh, about awesome. six or seven years um, Right, so there were some details because the history was different. Um, also, you know, the the destruction of Glossatep went down differently because it ended up being um, it ended up being a whole Gormas related thing to uh, to try and rip off Glossatep's node. Um, right, and you know, to go into it any further would be uh, me telling you about details about my chronicle, which probably are not that interesting. But uh, <laughs> uh, it's anyone else but the but that stuff was there but you know my you know my chronicle did not follow the you know did not strictly follow the main mage continuity so naturally I made adjustments um, yeah also there were some things to tie stuff up that uh, you know weren't absolutely necessary in my chronicle I had some of them written down as like you know one line notes like what happened to the computer right right like that's the yeah. Thing, you know, I had that set up in case the, the characters, you know, popped over the spies' demise, but they never did. Right? Um, for for Alien Avatar, um, 
which I just want to mention something because there is a big change in Alien Avatar between the the way I ran it and the way it was published, and it's kind of funny because um, when I ran Alien Avatar, it was a complete clusterfuck, right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, it was fun. It was one of the my my group still talk about this session, right? Because they had a little thing where all right, my um uh my buddy Steve was playing um. Was playing a Thig Technomancer, right? And uh, he didn't have a lot of he. His spheres weren't that high up. He wanted some guns that shot really well for this mission, right? Um, so he used uh, some spirit magic to awaken the guns, right? He didn't bind the ring, so the guns really liked to shoot. Right? <laughs> they really loved shooting, right? And if he held them, they would kind of track or whoever was walking by, right? And they but they gave him three more dice on his firearms, so like kick ass, right? Mm-hmm. Cool. And so they're going through Alien Avatar and their plan, um, was they they broke into the database to um, to, you know, um, get some of the names of the, the guards on the base, right? Some of the special forces operators. Right? And they you know, they used some life medics to cut their own faces up into the faces of these guards, right? Um, and after avoiding it, after avoiding some snowmobile patrols, they got in. Unfortunately, um, Steve goes face to face with the guy that he's doubling. Oh God! <laughs> so, <laughs> so they they have this chase into one of the administrative buildings. Um, Steve managed to um, use a bit of force and chicanery to grab hold the dude and then hold his uh, hold his pistol up to the guy's head. Um, right, while the other operators are coming in with their guns, right? And he's going, All right, everybody just calm down here and we'll just talk this over. And this is the point at which I, story funny, just went bang! Right? <laughs> <laughs> and Steve had been miming, holding his gun. You know, the awakened <laughs> likes to shoot. Yes. Up his head, right? And then that time, at that point, everything went to shit. Um, one of, they ended up, um, Retreating at one point, the uh, Yukonados uh, guy they had um, uh, uh, botched a bunch of uh, vulgar healing spells. He ended up turning himself into a bomb by um, uh, intentionally overloading himself with Paradox and detonating for 31, uh, uh, 31 docs backlash. And, um, and I thought... Oh my god. And they ended up, and so in the original um, thing, there were, uh, I had a garrison of about, uh, of about 200 soldiers, and a bunch of guys in power suits, and so on and so forth. And, um, and when so when I submitted to Bill, he kind of goes, are you sure? This seems a little tough, right? Uh, no, it's totally <laughs> awesome, you know? Um, I had this, this, and this happen. All this great stuff happened when I ran the adventure. Well, I guess Bill didn't think the whole, like, you know, having one of the PCs turn into a paradox bomb. Uh-huh. <laughs> and all that. And, you know, having them have to retreat and come back and so on was, was good because he made me he made me cut it back to far fewer people so that the the story would be easier for the average group to, to live with. Yeah. Um, okay. Now, you're working on a, a reimagining of Mage of the Ascension at the moment uh, through your blog called Mage of the Dirty Version. Uh, is this purely an intellectual exercise? Uh, is there a fun outing in game design, or is it something that you see yourself or others actually playing? 
Um, you know, that's a, a hell of a good question. I think uh, I think the main thing is that this allows me to play with some stuff in game design without really worrying about, uh, well, am I going to publish this myself as a commercial thing? Um, you know, it's something I can get an audience for. I can play with some game design ideas um, and kind of take in a relaxed fashion. I do think I'm going to run it. I um, at some point. Right now, you know, my dance card is probably full until until early 2010 for gaming, just right. because I, I've got a Star Wars Saga game coming up, and then I've uh, got my adventure mod game, and then I'll probably get get to it. Um, but mostly, you know, this is. Um, I guess this is sort of uh, highly refined game design fanfic, <laughs> uh, and uh, and I, it's something I hope other people will be interested in and have fun with. And I think well, which... that's sorry. No, I was Karen. Uh, I think at some point uh, I'm gonna find some spots in the project because it really is a big thing for something so casual and I'm going to try and open it up for other participants. Maybe I'll throw a wiki on the site and stuff like that. Oh, cool. So which part of it do you think you're most looking forward to yourself? Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm doing it in such a piecemeal fashion, right? Like right now I'm working on the, the humanities uh, tradition, right? Which is one of the new traditions, right? It's basically right. the one that... Uh, that I had instead of the Cult of Ecstasy or the Euthanados because, um, well, because the problem with the, the Euthies, right, is that, um, is that they don't really have a decent uh, a paradigm for the sake of a magical praxis. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, they have, they had one that I put in the tradition book, right? Um, but, you know, um, saying that there's a wheel of karma um, and you shake a bone and that's magic is not really a paradigm. Uh, The cult have a great paradigm, um, but, you know, often you don't have a good motive, a set of motives for them, right? Like, you know, you can only only get so far on free love. Um, (laughs) Just kind of sad. I love free love. Um, (laughs) uh, It's free. It's free. Uh, so, yeah. So this is my mashup of them. Um, adding a couple of other things to try and turn them into kind of a cohesive tradition. Also, oh, I cool. want... This is kind of the... Again, going back to the Invisibles, this is sort of the, the King Mob tradition, right? You know? Yeah. You have a lot of well, great sets, and then you shoot secret agents, and it's just bad. Yeah. Uh, I read the, uh, the the opening fiction for them on your blog, so... Uh, uh, it was an interesting read. <laughs> <That's for sure. laughs> yeah, that was a lot cornier than I thought it was going to be when it started. <laughs> cool. Right, I just want to wrap with then a couple of questions about Mage the Awakening. Um, do your home games still inform the material that you write for that? I mean, I had the impression from your website that much of the material you produced originates still in your home chronicles. Uh, if that's the case, what sort of advantages and disadvantages do you find that approach brings? I mean, like you said just now with Alien Avatar, you know, the stuff that you thought worked really well, and Bill Bridges was like, nah, leave that out. <laughs> no. uh, yeah, well, I think the advantage is that, um, is that I can see what's enthousi- what enthuses my players. Um, and my players also provide feedback, and they add their own creativity. And so I have this, you know, big, 
great brew of ideas that I can come that I can come to the table with, um, or come come to the computer with to, to do work. The disadvantage is that you do have to look more broadly than your own group, right? You know, that's the whole thing with Alien Avatar, right? Like, you know, my group, you know, people, you know, they love blowing themselves up. You know, in my um, in the game I ran just recently, if you read my blog, like all the PCs committed suicide and they loved it. Yes, um, that was very interesting. <laughs> but you know, not everybody has those tastes, and uh, and so you have to look outside of that. Um, and it's hard to find uh, really good critique on the internet because a lot of the time it's you know it's one guy who hasn't played the game and may never play the game sounding off. So what I read a lot of is I read a lot of narratives about this thing happened to me in my game. Right when somebody talks about a thing that happened to them in their game, I know where they're coming from immediately. Right? Yeah, I know it's not a theoretical construct; it's just a, a bump they ran into, right? Mm-hmm. Or you know something they got into when they were making a character, something like that. Um, I pay attention to that. Uh, but yeah, as I, it has to be mediated by you know what a what a broad audience can find useful, but you know. Uh, it's mostly that I can get this great source of ideas, um, and and I get a basic idea of what works for my group. Right. Now, speaking about things that you read on the internet, um, I've I've noticed in a few places that you'll see a discussion that talks about how Mage: The Awakening took a while to find its tone and its focus over several releases. Mm. Um, now, I I, I'm, I run Mage: The Ascension. Uh, uh, and I, I treat Mage of the Awakening as kind of like somebody's house I can go into and steal stuff from and then take <laughs> it back to my own game. <laughs> um, but So I don't have that overall view of the line as a whole. I mean, do you think it's true that it took a while to, to find its yeah. stride? I know Mage of the Ascension went through several changes of tone and approach, for example. I, I mean, is it just due to the scope of the game line? or? I did also read, just to add in here, I did read that um, Mage of the Awakening did get put through and then it pulled back to add some more fluff and more flavor to it. Is that also true? What, for the core? Yeah, the core book. Uh, well, like I said, we went through three... We designed three different mages. Hmm. Right? Um, pretty, like, pretty much uh, start to finish. Um, and, uh, you know, there were... Oh, yeah, there were a lot of different things. I mean, um, but I don't think that was true with the fluff, necessarily. Uh, as far as... As far as I know, there was nothing. Nothing was really pulled back, and except that you know it went through a long, a long development cycle. And part of that was just the, the magic had to do with how how big the magic system was, and the fact that we really wanted to try and get in you know spells this time instead of um, sort of uh, you know loose throats. Um, now. In terms of finding its feet, finding its focus, I mean, I think with any new game you're going to get that. Uh, I think with Awakening, right. a lot of it comes from... I suppose it comes from uh, of seeing what, uh, from seeing what engages people uh, and running yeah. with it, right? Like, for example, the... Um, the game originally wasn't so order-centric, right? If you look at the early books, there's sort of a... There's equal measure of what what paths and orders are up to, right? But eventually, you know, we found that a lot of people were sort of reflexively situating their game around the orders, right? Because the orders gave you sort of that zesty content, 
and they gave you that ready-made PC role, right? So, so the orders got, you know, got a bigger treatment. So, I mean, a lot of it is just throwing stuff at a wall and seeing, you know, seeing See what, what sticks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, cool. But I think it, I don't think it was any more so than than any other game line. Right. Now, fi- finally, for me, have you. I just noticed this the other day. Actually, you wrote the off the map chapter of Boston Unveiled, right? I did. So that makes you responsible. It makes you responsible for the Prince of a Hundred Thousand Leaves. Hmm. Um, do you recall where the inspiration or ideas for that came from? Because it's it's just a completely outrageous idea. Um, it came from the fact that I okay when when we were working on the whole thing with the abyss, right? Um, I wrote this thing to Bill Bridges saying that, oh, I, you know, I don't think we should have any more Lovecraftian stuff. I mean, I don't, you know, people shouldn't be hitting a random row of keys anymore um, and saying, oh, you worship this dude and he has tentacles. I mean, I'm <laughs> fucking sick of it. There's already a game that does that stuff wonderfully called, uh, called Cthulhu. Um, and, uh, like, let's just give this, let's give this shit a rest for Christ's sake. And uh, although I didn't use those words with Bill, um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and Bill, you know, because because uh, Bill Bridges has you know um, this great sort of mytho poetic mythopoetic education, he was able to point out to me, well, well, it's not just Lovecraft, right? He talked about uh, Swedenborgian mysticism. And all these other things, right? And he said, "Well, it's he said it's popular, and there are these other precedents." So, um, so I accepted that. But of course, you know, I kept a grudge. No, not a grudge. <laughs> I still kept a I kept a secret ambition to try and find have the abyss find its own voice, right? Right. Um, and so, so the prince is sort of uh, is sort of my expression of that. Okay. Of being, you know, of being, of this being kind of the realm of, of anti-narrative, right? Of, um, you know, of things that are broken, but their brokenness comes to consume our reality, which is a bit different from from your classic Lovecraftian thing, where you know the where you know the 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 gods, uh, Lovecraft's gods, um, are not, they're not really outside of our reality, but they're, they're what's true about our reality, right? What's mm-hmm. terrifying is what's true, right? Um, and the abyss is sort of the, um, the, you know, the lie to the lie. The world is the lie. The abyss is the The abyss is the mockery that you know reveals the deception inherent in the reality around you, and so I wanted to I wanted to just um, make that a big deal. So it was sort of my my attempt to try and try and find the game its own voice for you know wacky outer darkness things. Cool. Well, I used to I used it as the central piece of a of a Mage of the Ascension arc that ran really nicely for half a dozen six seven sessions, and uh, I was we we're finishing a different session last night, and I said, "Then I'm going to be interviewing Malcolm Shepard tomorrow night." Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, if you guys have any questions, and uh, I'm like, he's the guy who who wrote that Red Word thing, the Prince of a Hundred Thousand Leaves, and one of the players looks at me and goes, "Yeah, get him to answer why he hates us so much." <laughs> so <laughs> <to> the, <laughs> nice. 
cool. Oh, I love having, having those cannibals. Actually, the funny thing is that I originally... There's a whole section... Actually, that's, this is something something that's been left on the cutting room floor that I miss. Um, the, the town, the cannibal town where the Red Word is located, um, <clears throat> I originally had a comedy bit in there. I feel that it's appropriate, but the idea was that I'd have this kind of faulty tower sort of scenario. Um where, you know, basically one of the things is, one of the ways you get into the town is that it has a really good restaurant, right? And the reason it has a really good restaurant is that one of the cannibals left town and, you know, and went to France and became this noted chef, right? Because he didn't want to live with his, you know, his hick cannibal buddies anymore, right? But, you know, his cannibal ways asserted themselves, you know, he, he ate several cooks and he had to flee, so he opened up this hotel and, you know, it it got, you know, a star rating, right? So even though <laughs> place has been wiped off the map, you still have mentions of this great hotel. And this guy wants to still run his, you know, he wants to run his business. Um, so he keeps trying to get his relative not to, you know, not to eat the tourists. <laughs> right? um, awesome. So I wanted to have that whole bit in there, but, you know, apparently you can't, you can't be funny with cannibals. You can't be oh, dear. <laughs> well, I'm sure Vince has got at least one more question for you, a uh, staple of the show. Oh, yeah. Let me pull it out of the uh, Beckett bucket. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it is, uh, Malcolm, if you could be a household appliance, which one would you be and why? If I could be a household appliance. Yeah. yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's a tough one. What? Uh, <laughs> from the sublime a, to the ridiculous <laughs> I would be a blender because we need a new blender um, <laughs> and because the blender is sort of the, the destroyer god in the pantheon of, of the kitchen right? but like all destroyer gods it's ultimately responsible for the creation of something nourishing and new so I would be <laughs> boy I would be the Shiva. Cool. All right. Well, folks, that is going to wrap up things this week for the uh, episode number 11 of the Darker Days podcast. Uh, If you'd like to email us, uh, we can uh, push a question over to uh, Malcolm Shepard. Malcolm, do you want to plug your site or how people can get in contact with you if they need to? If you want to contact me, uh, you can email mobunitedmedia at gmail.com mm-hmm. uh, and you can also visit me uh, I have a huge site and uh, blog uh, at uh, www.mobunited.com now you'll be redirected to the blog so the actual blog is on a different uh, URL but you'll get a 301 redirect and you'll get right there mm-hmm. uh, and there's about um, two and a half years worth of blogging um, wow. Some are very angry, so that may be. <laughs> uh, there are also links to uh, some of the games that I make and some of the stuff I've worked on. Uh, List my freelancing credits. Uh, there's Eternal Legends, uh, uh, the game I work on with Stu Wilson, and a way to go buy that. Um, we just dropped the price on that. Oh, excellent! Mm, that's right. Yeah, and um, right, and a bunch of insights about. Um, uh, tabletop RPGs, uh, 
uh, some stuff on computer games and social media. And I always welcome your your inputs, your input or comments. Excellent. Cool. Well, we want to say thanks for coming on the show. Uh, it's been really interesting to hear your answers and uh, thoughts on Mage, uh, various versions, and other games. So uh, thanks a lot for that. Thank you very much for having me. Excellent. And you can uh, find us at darkerdays.tk or you can email us at darkerdaysradio at gmail.com. Uh, <laughs> look, forward to, uh, look forward to our next Darkling number two, which should highlight... Uh, Beckett's uh, New World of the... was it? Book of Nod. Sorry, Book of Nod. Book of Nod for the New World of Darkness, yeah. And then after that, our next show will feature uh, David Hill. So uh, keep your ears peeled, folks. David. Awesome. So we'll uh, sign off, and uh, everyone have a great night. <laughs>